Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Jake. Chris isn't able to join us this week, so instead, we have an old interview from our archive that we wanted to release to you. It hasn't been aired before. This was back when I was doing a lot of research into our uh, Skunk Works series. And we talked to a lot of the pilots and experts for the SR-71 and the F-117 Nighthawk and the U-2 spy plane. It was an awesome series. You should go back if you haven't heard it before. I think it was back in February of 2021, sometime in there. But we also interviewed Jim Goodall, who's a retired Master Sergeant of the U.S. Air Force. And he's an expert on all things SR-71 Area 51, and a lot of the crazy top-secret black projects that have been going on. And the interview that we had is over two hours long, so we didn't previously release it, but it's so interesting when we went back and re-listened to it that I think you guys are definitely going to enjoy it. So without further ado, here is Jim Goodall. One of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is to talk about the SR-71 Blackbird. And sure. this is... This is a plane that was inspirational for me growing up as a kid, as an 80s kid. And yeah, yeah, it sounds that way. And, and what, it, just, it was always this fantastical thing that always had this enigma surrounding it of all these stories that come up and what it's capable of. And you hear stories of like, oh, well, the thing would leak fuel until it got to certain altitudes. And you hear all this stuff that's probably not true, right? It's just all these untrue stories and, and fantastical stuff. And it just seems like this, uh, this, mystery plane that nobody really knows anything about. So I wanted to have you in to tell us about about the SR-71, and I kind of want to start with where it started and why why does the SR-71 exist in the first place? Well, let me give you a, yeah, just a brief background of how I got into yeah, this Yeah, absolutely. Obsession. Yeah, yeah. Let's, do, let's hear um, that. I'm just for the record, I'm 75. I had uh, five years active duty, a 10-year break, and then uh, 21 years with the Minnesota Air Guard. But when I grew up in the Bay Area, I'm a third generation San Franciscan. Uh, <laughs> uh, but when I, we, were li- we were living in San Jose, and I was about five years old, and I already gone to bed, but it was still light out. And my dad came into the, uh, into the bedroom. He said, I don't know what's coming, but you got to see it. Now, I've always been into machines. Almost any kind of machine I'm fascinated with. We went outside, and we were not that far from San Jose Municipal Airport. Not the international airport, but it was much smaller back in 1950, 51 time frame. And there was just rumble, this, this growling rumble. You couldn't see anything yet. And all of a sudden, over the Coast Mountains, heading to Travis Air Force Base, which is north of San Francisco, were not one, not two, but 24 Convair B-36s. That is six pushers and four jet engines, a 260-foot wingspan, and it can fly unrefueled for 60 hours. Wow. A crew of 27. (laughs) And that was my first experience. Uh, Fast forward, now I'm about nine years old. My best friend's dad is base commander at Moffett Field Naval Air Station. And his name was Danny. And the the Marine guards at Moffett Field referred to us as Captain Smith's son and that friend of his. (laughs) I mean, we we literally had the run of of Moffett Field. And Dan, one day I came there and Danny said, there's something really, really cool in the big hangar, hangar one. 
So everybody, everybody knew, was familiar with us, so we, we didn't stand out. And we go into the big hangar, and at the far end, the north end of the hangar, there was an area that was cordoned off curtains. No guards, just curtains, a sign that says, keep out. So Danny says, follow me. So we go. Well, obviously, as a kid, you're going to do the opposite <laughs> of whatever. <laughs> oh, abso- absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Keep out or come on in. So we, so we, go, behind, we go behind the, uh, the curtain, and there is the still classified XF-104 Starfighter, the, the one with the short stubby wings that they referred to it as the missile with the man in it. Wow. <laughs> and it had been in the transonic, uh, uh, the big transcon- transonic wind tunnel at uh, Ames. Which is which? It wasn't NASA back then; it was NACA, but it's hmm. NASA today. And Danny said, "Hey, get up in the cockpit." <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I get up in the cockpit, and uh, he moves the ladder away. I close the, the I close the uh, canopy. It was a, it was a slide side mounted canopy. I close it. I'm in there for about two or three minutes. And I was getting a little bit nervous, so I go to unlatch the canopy, and it's duck oh no <laughs> so we had to call shore patrol <gasps> to get me out oh no i think danny my butt still hurt you know i bet yeah, almost 70 years later yeah, that's a paddling <laughs> like no other was it a wooden spoon or a hand <laughs> no we just got our butt chewed that's all yeah so so i've, I've always had a fascinating with a fascination with machines uh, and that was my first exposure to a skunk works airplane and i was hooked uh fast forward uh, i'm a juvenile delinquent i got in a lot of trouble um i was ordered to either shape up or fly, fly right and on my 17th birthday rather than go to juvenile hall till i was 18 or fly right i went in the service i think that's a decision a lot of young men make right and i and i had high enough IQ. I, uh, I aced all five of the categories. I could do almost anything I wanted to do. I made some mistakes, but that's just life. But I, you know, I ended up as a communication specialist. I'm 18 years old. Just before my 19th birthday, I'm in Lowry Air Force Base in Denver, Colorado. What's a communication specialist do? Basically everything we see right here, you know, hook, hooking up uh, anything that's, that's going to, you can communicate with either right. radio teletype which doesn't exist anymore um but telemetry systems okay uh, phone systems got it uh, anything you can transmit data either voice or digital we didn't have digital back then uh, and i got a set of orders to go to edwards air force base for 90 days tdy to help support three programs the one program was the uh, yc-141 starlifter that's that they're now all all been retired now. The other one was the XB seventy Valkyrie. That's the big white six engine yep. Mach three bomber. And the other one was a classified program. And it turns out that on February 29th was, which I believe was a Saturday. Uh, woke up in the morning, the alarms are going off on the flight line, and I had a flight line badge. But my, but we were eight miles from the flight line. My, uh, my truck was gone, and apparently two YF-12s had flown in straight in from Area 51. They they didn't do any passes. They just came straight in. They went right to the Lockheed hangar and they turned around as they're getting ready to back them in. But the engines are still running, 
and the heat from four J58s set off the deluge system. It'll dump 60,000 gallons of water in about three or four seconds. <laughs> <laughs> now, these planes are the precursor to the SR-71, right? These well, the, 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 the original Blackbird is called the A-12, ox okay. cart. It doesn't stand, the A doesn't stand for attack. It stands for article. They started on the design requirements. Uh, it was an A-1, and then there was an A-2, uh, all the way up through A-12. And the last design iteration was what we had here in Minneapolis for 15 years before the rats from the museum, Air Force Museum took it and gave it to the CIA. Mm-hmm. So uh, so these, these things are getting covered with water. They're trying to hide them, obviously. They're getting them in the hangar right, as fast right. as possible. And, and everybody who had a flight line pl- pass jumped in their car and headed to the flight line. So it was like someone <laughs> set up flares and, and, and fireworks saying, oh, by the way, this is a classified airplane coming in, but we're going we're gonna to set off the alarm system so everybody on base knows that something <laughs> came in and everybody's all excited about it. So I didn't see it that day. And I How did, far is Area 51 from that? Uh, as the crow flies, you know, maybe 300 miles. Okay. Not very far. Sure. And it... And, and it 43 miles a minute doesn't take very long. No, yeah, no, I was going to say, that's not yeah. a very long flight, yeah. I ended up talking to, yeah. Can I, you even get your landing gear up by the time you're all the way over the, I mean, there's, that's. No, not, you know, you, you, you got a good point. <laughs> so, uh, I didn't see the airplane. I heard it for about 10 days, because I was always, I was inside putting equipment in, and I'd see B-58s fly, and I would see, you know, all sorts of other airplanes flying out there, but. I didn't know it was making all the noise and what caused all the excitement. So I had put in a lot of overtime, and I had what they call comp, you know, comp time. I had days off. So I'm at, I'm at uh, it's March 10th, 1964. I am at the Northrop uh, hangar. I'm going to take a Piaggio, which is a, um, an Italian vintage uh, <laughs> I just he, bought one. He just bought it. I literally just bought a P two hundred E Piaggio. Yeah, no, this this, this is, is a little a little newer, but yeah, yeah. this this is Gullwing pusher. Uh, <laughs> I think it held twelve you know twelve seats. So not a scooter. Not like a Chris scooter. Is referring to no, no. <laughs> and I was excited. And we're getting ready. We're get, yeah the air, yeah the shuttle plane was flying into Hawthorne, you know, suburb of L A. That's where Northrop's corporate headquarters were. And. Uh, I hear this roar and I see dirt and dust and everything being blown across Rogers Dry Lake. So I went running down the, the flight line and I look at the XB-70 test pad uh, where they were going to do engine run-ups for the XB-70. And I thought it was the X-15. Here's this black airplane, fire coming out of the back about the length of the airplane. People were too small. And all of a sudden they said, hey, we're loading. So went running back got in the airplane, and we took off over Rogers Dry Lake, and, and we banked right over the Blackbird. I'm looking straight down out the window on it as they're towing a C-130 in front of it. They had shut the engines down. And I'm looking at it, and I just, I could not believe what I was seeing. And trust me, it has affected me the rest of my life. So did you have any idea what it was when you saw it at the time? I know it's fast, and I know it was, it was black, and it was sinister, and they uh, they hadn't announced, and it hadn't been announced publicly yet. Yeah, I think uh, President uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson uh, had made an announcement two days earlier about the advanced manned interceptor, and he referred to the YF-12 as the A-11. 
So why did they make this plane? What are they competing with? What did the Soviets have? Like, why does this plane we, exist? We were in the middle. We were in the middle of the Cold War, and it was going to be an escort fighter for the XB seventy. So they needed they needed an airplane that could fly at eighty thousand feet at, at Mach three to be able to fly along with the uh, XB seventy. Or it had been the B seventy if, if it had gone operational. Did it have any armament armaments uh, it, at all? Or uh, what? Yeah, it was. It, it was. It was. It was truly a fighter. It okay. was. It was. It was an F twelve. Was is the official designation? And why is for flight test or special testing? And it carried the operational bird would have carried four AIM forty sevens, and the AIM forty seven was the grandfather to the Hughes AIM fifty four Phoenix fire control system. Okay. Difference between the AIM uh, 47 and, and the AIM 54 is the AIM 47 had a semi-active seeker. The uh, Phoenix had a fully active seeker, which really increases the, the cost of the weapon. And Jim Eastham was a pilot for all, th- all seven uh, firings from the air in the YF-12. And they, they, they were at uh, altitude at 70, 75,000 feet. You know, the target aircraft was at 1,500 feet, and they had a direct hit. Um, they were shooting uh, at airplanes 150 miles away, and the missile would come within three to, three to five feet of, of the target airplane. And wh- who are we fighting here? Oh, this, these are drones. Okay, okay. And the biggest drone was a B-47, six-engine uh, medium bomber. And they, uh, for all intents and purposes, um, six of the seven launches were 100% successful, and the one that failed is the uh, something shorted out in the seeker, and it self-destructed. What, is, what do the Soviets have at this time? And that is even, do they have anything close? Or no, what are, no, they didn't have, they, you know, we, the XB-70 was, this, this is pre-stealth. Yep. The XB-70 had a radar cross-section of about a quarter mile. Oh my God, okay. Compared <laughs> to compared to the A-12's radar cross-section of 22 square inches. Now, this is all uh, done with shapes and radio absorption panels and materials. Right. So, uh, and it put out an infrared signature. This is the XB-70. You know, the only thing closer to it would be a nuclear detonation or the sun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and the XB-70 was a cool airplane. I never saw it fly. I saw it, both of them in production at Palmdale when I was at Edwards. We went over there. So there group. was only two of them? Correct, and they crashed one of them. That's yeah. the one, the F-104 got caught in the vortexes and just rolled across the top of it and took out the vertical tails. Oof. And both those pilots got out. Uh, okay. One of them broke his arm when the, clam- when the Stanley ejection capsule closed prematurely on him and buggered up his arm. Yeah. So, so that was, you know, that was my first, my first experience with the Blackbird. Uh, the following Monday, I got, to, got back from my days off. I went, you know, I, I was at the section. I was given a set of orders, Lockheed hangar. And I walk into the back of the Lockheed hangar, you know, sort of my, you know, my IDs. I'm putting some companion equipment there in the hangar. And I walk in there, and I'm looking at the rear end of two Blackbirds. Hmm. Now, when you're, when you're, by this time I was 19. No, I was still 18. I, at the end of the month, I turned 19. This is March of 64. And for a guy who was absolutely nuts about airplanes and machines, to be within 
10 feet of the most incredible airplane ever to fly. Almost the most incredible machine ever to exist. Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, except my friend Bob Lazar worked on things that were better. So, <laughs> And Bob's a longtime friend of mine. <laughs> so I just, uh, that's, that's what started my passion. That's what started my passion on the Blackbird. Sure. And the, which, is, which is really ironic. I, when I asked, oh, I, didn't do, I didn't ask for anything when I was still in the service. When I got out in 66, uh, I was still so taken back by the Blackbird. I wrote letters to Lockheed, to Air Force, to CIA, to DOD, asking for some non-classified photos of the SR-71 and a couple for the YF-12. And their official policy was not to cooperate. So because they didn't cooperate, I started digging. The more I dug, the more I found out. The more I found out, the deeper I dug. <laughs> and Ben Rich, who replaced Kelly Johnson at the Skunk Works. At what position? I mean, these are, they're up there. These guys are way up. Well, Ben Rich was vice president right. general manager of yes. the Skunk Works. Later, he was president. Um, Kelly was a founder. He was, just, he was referred to as a general manager. He never held a the president title, Ben did, and other ones subsequent to that. The current one is still general manager, vice president general manager of advanced development programs, which is also known as the Skunk Works. So uh, I lost track where I was at. No, that's all right. Yeah. So uh, you're just talking about finally getting to see it in the hangar. Yeah, when I was at Edwards, I just, I mean, here's, here's the most incredible airplane in the world. Uh, the fastest thing ever to, you know, have a man in it. So well, the X-15 flies higher. Yeah, but it's a rocket power airplane. Right. And what's phenomenal about what's, what Kelly Johnson and his very, very small team of engineers and production people were able to do, from signing the contract to first flight was 32 months. Wow. The Air Force today in 2021 can't change the paint scheme of a C-130 <laughs> in 32 months. And, and it had only been 15 years since Jaeger had gone Mach 1 in a rocket-powered airplane. And we're going Mach 3. Sustained Mach 3. Wow. Hour, hour and a half in between air refuelings. What's, does anybody know what the real top speed yes. of a Blackbird is? What is the top, like the, 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 the ragged edge? The... Well, the ragged edge is, is uh, they fly at the ragged edge all the time. But <laughs> the I guess if you're going Mach 3, you're pretty much there. The, the, the optimum speed for a Blackbird is Mach 3.24, and it depends on altitude, whether it's you know, 1,900 miles an hour or 2,100 miles an okay. hour. Okay, so that's optimal. Where, that's optimal. The fastest an A-12 has ever flown it was flown by Jim Eastham in the airplane that was here in Minneapolis for 15 years. They were, he was up, they had, uh, they had done a number of major changes on the inlet and the bypass doors, and, and they, had, uh, they had Model K engines in them at the time. Those are the ones that had about 500 more pounds of thrust per engine. That's at sea level. Okay. And uh, they, were, they were up in bad air. It was very, very warm. And they, you know, Jim couldn't get about two, up above 2.7. And he's trying all sorts of stuff. So he decided he was going to go a little bit nose down, mm -hmm. see if he can pick up some speed. And when he did, he, he entered very, very cold air, which is optimum. 
and he redlined everything. <laughs> Literally, everything just pegged. So he immediately... Because he's already going down. He's already got the throttles he's on, open. He's only he's on, he's on going down about two degrees, two or three degrees. But when he hit the good air, all of a sudden the airplane accelerated. And it, uh, uh, it really surprised the heck out of him. But they went through, and, he, and he, immediately you go through a descent profile. It's more important on descent to maintain the speed and altitude than it is going up. Because the, the Pratt & Whitney J-58, which was designed for a Navy, uh, just a generic Navy engine, it was a 2.7 uh, mock engine, and it was going to be used either in the F-8 Crusader III, the Super Crusader, um, or the, and they were also considering the RE5 Vigilante, take out the two J-79s, put in one J-58. So he was, it was an engine looking for a home. It was looking for a fleet defense airplane, which never really, ne- never really happened. But when Kelly was kicking around uh, the replacement for the U-2, which is ironic, they're still flying, uh, <laughs> and Will through four, 2040. Wow. Yeah. The, uh, uh, I hate it when I forget. No, that's okay. okay. So you got these engines in the Blackbird. Okay, He's going yeah. two degrees down. Yeah. So he, everything redlines. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll fix this stuff yeah. for you too. Everything, you know, you, uh, you redlined everything and he immediately headed back to area 51. What did his mock gauge read? Pardon? What did his mock gauge well, he read? Paid, he paid everything. So in, no, no idea. But, he, but the airplane was instrumented. It had instrumentation in there specifically for flight tests, for telemetry. That was the stuff that I was installing. Right, but was, right, right. But it was, you know, it was only for the local area, not for uh, high-speed flight. And when he got back to Area 51 and they looked at their, uh, all their, their equipment, they figured that the airplane went Mach 3.5. Nine two thousand three hundred ninety-one miles an hour. Wow! But that was for only about ten seconds, till they, you know, till he backed off the throttle and started the descent. Program. Yeah, yeah. It's probably trying to figure out what he was going to do with his pants in that ten right, seconds. Right, <laughs> right. Well, now Lou Shock quit flying. He was the first guy to fly it. He flew the first thirteen flights, and every flight, the first flight is nineteen sixty-two. First flight, fifty thousand dollars. Second flight went Mach one. $50,000. Fourth or fifth flight went Mach 2, $50,000. That's a lot more than Chuck Yeager was making. <laughs> this is 1962, $50,000. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's close to a million dollars today. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but one, one, of the, one of the things about uh, the engine, the J-58, and that's really the key to the airplane, that okay. and the inlet. Uh, and I have, a, again, I have about 20 or 30 different ways I can go on this, but... The J-58 is a very, very special engine. It's, it's designed for, for full-time afterburner use. Wow. And at speed and altitude, at Mach 3.2, at 85,000 feet, the engine, you c- can go Mach 3, and you can just back it off until you're just above before you come out of burner. It, the air, it just wants to go, and it's the inlet. And the inlet was primarily designed by Ben Rich, who replaced Kelly Johnson, and I can't remember Chuck's last name. It's not important. Uh, ben told me that uh, this other, this one of the other guys that helped him on it, he said maybe he had a ninth grade education, but he could visualize airflow. Wow. Um, but the engine is very unique. It, 
It grows six inches in length at, after, it's, after about 20 minutes of Mach 3 flight. Just and heat? That's from heat, heat expansion? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and it grows two and a half inches in diameter. Wow. So what's really critical on the descent phase, you have to co- cool the outer casing at the same rate you're, you're cooling the internal workings. It's like getting the bends. You don't want to come up too fast. Correct. Right? It's the same. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's the most critical part of the whole thing. But when, they, when uh, Jim got down and they checked everything, he did go 3.56 wow. at uh, 2,391 miles an hour, just short of 2,400. But that was an anomaly. The airplane, the airplane flies at, at 3.24. That is, that's when it, everything works in concert. And you were, you were at 96, 97% of the envelope at that speed. And very few airplanes fly at their, the top of their envelope. Right. The SR-71 spent its entire 58,000 hours of flight time right at the rigged edge. Now, they, they built 50 Blackbirds total. Mm-hmm. They built 15 A-12s. The airplane that was here in Minneapolis was, in, was the number eight. And then the last two A-12s were converted to an M-21, which is a mother airplane, a launch airplane for an unmanned drone, the D-21. And we'll get into that down the road later on on this interview. Sure. So, and they had built three YF-12s, and they built uh, 31 SR-71s. Two B models, a C model, and then the rest were A models. The first... Of the, of the 50 airplanes built, they managed to crash 20 of them. Wow. What now, was the... None, oh. none were lost to enemy fire. The first one, uh, matter of fact, he has his birthday tomorrow, which is... What's the date tomorrow? Fifth, Tomorrow's I think. The fifth, yeah, the fifth, yeah. yeah. Uh, February 5th. That's also my dad's birthday. I just realized that. Uh, Ken Collins was one of the first guys to fly <clears throat> the A-12, and he was... He was a, he ended up being an SR-71 pilot as well. And he was with the original Oxcart. That is the program name. And uh, he was flying near Wendover, Utah. He was in the clouds. He was at probably 35,000 feet. And he, he wanted to descent to go, to go underneath the overcast. Because Wendover, Utah is in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And in 1963, it still was in the middle of nowhere. And he's, as he's descending, he's backing off in his throttle, but the instrument ga- and all the gauges are staying constant. And he couldn't understand maybe there's something wrong with the autopilot or whatever. What turns out, his static pitot tube, that little thing that sticks out the front of the airplane, had a loop in it, some moisture had gotten into it, and it had frozen. Hmm. So all his, all his data wasn't moving. But the airplane, he's in clouds, and the airplane is so big, you really can't sense your angle of attack. And at 16 degree angle of attack, you're okay. At 16.001 degrees, you're inverted in a flat spin. Wow. And the only way out is to eject. So there's yeah, no recovery. No recovery. Can't. So uh, he, was, he was in uh, 926, which was the third A12. And um, I think it was May 24th, 1963, uh, he, he bailed out and crashed the airplane near Wendover, Utah. Because it was still an incredibly classified program, it's still top secret. They wanted to make sure if anybody saw the crash or heard about it, that they would stay away. So the Air Force announced that a an, an Air Force F-105 Thunder Chief 
with a one megaton nuke had crashed and there's plutonium scattered all over the area. <laughs> stay away. Everybody stay away. Yeah, wow. Unless you want a third arm. Right. And as, <laughs> and as it turns out, on that particular day, there wasn't an F-105 flying anywhere in the world. <laughs> well, that would never fly today because the, all these people keep track of what's going on. They oh, can yeah, see yeah, all yeah. the planes. Yeah, unle- unless the transponder's off. Right. Then it's anybody's guess. Yeah, I suppose. Because yeah. so, I, I, I follow a lot of the Sky King the Sky King uh, transmissions that they're all you, okay. you always hear them talking in like numbers, and I, I, you can never understand what they're saying. And you try and look <laughs> at the the flight paths; it, it's total conspiracy theory <laughs> yeah. stuff. But anyway, they have their own language. So uh, yeah, that that's that was the very very first loss. So that was the first one that went down. What about right. the other nineteen? Um, they had they lost three to pitch ups, where you're not paying attention to your angle of attack, and you pitch up going inverted, you got to punch out. They lost uh, two to wheel and tire failure on take. Actually, lost three wheel tire failure on takeoff. Hmm. That's a shame. The tires there's there's six main gear wheel tires, three on each bogey. Uh, and the airplane the, the airplane fully loaded maximum fuel load is about one hundred and forty thousand pounds. Jeez. If you blow one tire, you'll blow, you'll pop the other two. Just tires. because it's too much weight. Too much weight. So they, it took them a while to learn because they said they lost three airplanes because of it. Um, Sounds they, expensive. And they were all SR seventy ones. They weren't they weren't any of them A twelves or YF twelves. No, first YF twelve did the same thing. That's what it was. But the air, you know, th- that was the th- the three losses were. Within a ten-day period in January of 1967, if it had been a public program, when you're losing three out of fifty total blackbirds, yeah, that's a lot. That's you know. That's so eight, did they ever come up with a solution? Do they switch to a different well? The, tire solu- the solution is during training flights, you don't start the engine until two KC-135 Qs are up, and that's a specially modified tanker that had a segregated fuel system for JP-7. Okay. JP-7 is a triple distilled kerosene with a fluorocarbon lubricant in it. Okay. And the reason for the lubricant, well, first of all, the, the operating environment is, is off the charts. Uh, the pneumatics and hydraulics used on the engine, they use fuel. Really? And the fuel moves everything, and, and you have a real hard time cooling things down. The... After 21 minutes of Mach 3 flight, the, the airframe is totally soaked, heat-soaked from friction and radiant heat at altitude. And the airplane average temperature overall in the airframe is 520 degrees. That's, that's hotter than your broiler in your car. Wow. Yeah, the coolest, the coolest area is the windscreen. It's about 425, 430. What about the cockpit? Are you just in there sweating your nuts off? No, or? well, you're, you're in a David Clark spacesuit, which is air-conditioned, and they put, they go, it goes through three heat, heat exchangers. They pull off 1,200-degree air off the fourth stage. They, they go through three separate heat exchangers, and then finally when the air comes into the cockpit, there are two vents on either side of, of the ejection seat. The air coming into the cockpit is 30 degrees. Oh, hmm, that's not so bad. Right. 
Uh, there's been there's been some times where that thing had failed. I was just going to say, what, what is <laughs> and uh, everything in the cockpit smoking as as, wow. they, as they go into a descent profile and, and head you know, head for home. But it's it's everything about that airplane had to be designed from scratch. There isn't anything. I don't. I don't yeah, Kelly said I'll give anybody a hundred dollars who can who can find who can find a piece or part that will work that we don't have to specially design. Wow. Now, the, Just because the limits are so extreme, right? Well, I mean, you're, you're, the, air, the airplane's flying at the, the outside temperature is minus 70. The uh, uh, temperature as it, as it faces the engine is uh, 800 and, you know, 830 you know, 30 degrees that hits the engine face. Everything about that thing is, is special. Jim Eastham, again, I, I interviewed... Firstly, all of the original A-12 test pilots and operational pilots, and, and a good majority of the early SR-71 and YF-12 pilots. A lot of them were the same guy. But Jim Eastham said he was, uh, uh, he was coming in for a landing on an A-12. Everything was working good, and this is Area 51. They have a 14,000-foot runway. <laughs> but then on the dry lake bed, they took an oil truck, and they put a... a, a a line to follow that it's about a mile diameter circle. If you go far, you, you go fast long enough, you'll eventually run out of energy. You know, if you lose your brakes or the chute doesn't work. So Jim's coming in. He's you know touchdown. Everything's good. Uh, he pops the chute. Nothing happens. Hmm. So he hits the brake, brakes, and all of a sudden his hydraulic pressure goes to zero. So it's now his, his cockpit is heating up. I've had that happen he's at about he's 40 sm- miles an hour yeah, on a car. It's not, probably not the same. <laughs> no, not probably not. He said the, the cockpit's filling up with smoke. So he, he pops the canopy because uh, it was so much smoke he, could, he, couldn't, what, he couldn't. What speed would he be going at this point? He, land, he lands about 140 miles an hour. Okay. And, you know, you slow down pretty fast. I mean, because he's aero braking. Yeah. He's, he's land, he's, he's, you know, uh, and the whole bottom of the airplane is lifting body. So he's, he's just following the track, and uh, finally it stops. He gets out. He looks out behind him, and there's smoke coming out of everywhere in the airplane. And what caused this event were two things. First of all, Jim was up trying to go through envelope, you know, to expand the envelope. And the, and the test card said, if you can go Mach 3 or higher for 10 minutes just to see, check everything out, and then go into your descent profile. So Jim's at speed and altitude. The, you know, the, the, the outside temperature is ideal. Everything is running good. But they're having problems with uh, scheduling the bypass doors and the tertiary doors and, and bleed doors and everything else. It was just, it wasn't working right. But they had made a whole bunch of modifications, and they had pinned the, ter- the free-floating tertiary doors on the back of the exhaust ejector uh, in the closed position. And Jim said he's his full throttle. He's about, you know, 2.8. It's not going anywhere. Good air. All of a sudden, the whole airplane just shakes like he got hit in the rear end by, by someone tailgating. The air, whole airplane just shook. All of a sudden, he bounces up to 2.85. A few more vibrations, he's up to 2.9. All of a sudden, he hit the magic 3.0, and the airplane started to accelerate. He went to Mach 3.33. And up 
next to the periscope is a duration stop clock, stopwatch. So he hit that when he hit Mach 3, and as soon as he hit uh, 10 minutes, he goes into his de- descent pro- profile, and that's when his cockpit's starting to fill up with smoke. He doesn't think anything of it, but, you know, he just cooks some stuff. And he comes in for a landing. I would have thought a lot of this, this thing's on <laughs> yeah. fire. Yeah. I got to get this thing down. And that was a $50,000 flight for him, too, by the way, to right. go sustain Mach 3. So uh, he lands. He hits the brakes. Nothing, you know, nothing happens. He pops the chute. Nothing happens. He finally runs out of energy. Uh, smoke coming out from everywhere. Well, it turns out that... The reason why he didn't have brakes, someone felt that they were going to save some money. So rather than, <laughs> re- rather than using a stainless steel pipe plug, the guy used aluminum. Ugh. Aluminum melted, it's melted 720 yeah. degrees. Yeah. And the temperature was probably close to 700 degrees. So he just extruded it out. Yeah. Wow. And I said, well, why didn't, why didn't the chute work? He said, well, the doors closed and it was a, a slight gap, maybe, maybe three-eighths of an inch. There was enough heat coming through there at speed and altitude that it actually melted the Nomex. Wow. So he had, it was like someone welded a bead on top of the, uh, the, the, the shoot uh, pilot chute. Yeah. So when the doors opened up, the... It's just a block of plastic. Well, no, just, just a bead, <laughs> oh, bead sure. down the top of it. And I said, well, where did all the smoke come from? I said, well, when they designed the airplane, they weren't sure what the overall environment was going to be for the wiring. And it turns out that the uh, type of wiring they used, the installa- insulation, was good to about 400 degrees. What happened, they burnt the insulation off of almost all the wiring. Wow. Jim said another, another 15 or 20 seconds in the air, and he would have lost the airplane. So wow. are the controls on this thing hydraulic or all electronic? No, they're, they're mechanical. So, so he would have had been able to somehow hold on to the at least... No, you would have had to put that thing between your legs that that yellow and black thing and pull it and they checked. <laughs> okay. Punch okay. out at that yeah. point. There, there was no, there was no way to recover from something like so, that. So a couple questions you mentioned before that the intake was revolutionary on these engines and you look at the blackbird and you see these massive nose cones. So how is this different than, you know, a traditional jet engine we see today and what's so revolutionary about it? Well, first of all, it's, it's an inlet for the only operational Mach three airplane ever to fly <laughs> that we know of. And that's what's considered a supersonic inlet, right? Yes. Yeah. Most, most, virtually all supersonic airplanes, the shockwave is outside the inlet. In the Blackbird, they ingest the shockwave in just inside the lip. But it was really magical from, the, from the, the front of the engine inlet to the face of the engine to about 20 feet. Wow. And in that area... Due to compression and friction, the air goes from minus 70 to 830 degrees Fahrenheit. There's a 900-degree rise in temperature in 20 feet. Just from compression. Compression and friction. The engines suck in about 2 million cubic feet of air per second. <laughs> but but at, at speed and altitude, the, you only have four-tenths of a percent of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So you have to cram as much air in there as you can. And most of the air is bypassed around the engine. You see those big tubes, and they're bypass tubes, and they go directly from, from the ninth stage directly into the uh, exhaust ejector. So it tur- that's why the term turbo ramjet comes right, into Right, 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 right. 
because the engines actually ap- operates very similar to a ramjet. Hmm. But th- the phenomenal thing is when they designed the inlet, it was Ben Rich and I have Charlie's name in the, I can just reach out and touch it. I can't get his, I can't remember his last name, but it's not important. In 1978, NASA decided that they were, they were going to do a, a study. They had three supercomputers. They were controlled data, model 205s or 206s. And they were going to say, okay, we have to use the J58 and we have to use the round inlet. We can't, we can't alter the structure of the engine nacelle. Mm-hmm. But if we were to design it today in, in almost 1980s, 1978, 1979 timeframe with new materials and stuff, what could you do if you were going to design the inlet from scratch? And after 15 months, they came back and they said, we probably used some different materials for a couple of the seals. Other than that, we have no way of improving it. Wow. Yeah. And, that, and that's the magic of the people that Kelly Johnson and Ben Rich hired. They just, they hired the right people. I don't care if you were, if you were a shop guy on the floor. You had, you had the authority to go right at, you know, walk into Kelly's office and say, I got a problem. He would get up off his desk. He'd go down on the sh- on the shop on the hangar floor, production line floor, and look what your problem is. And he'll call the engineers together right then and there and say, "Okay, let's get a fix," rather than some bureaucratic nightmare like we have today. I mean, I know when they're flying the B one, they were having all sorts of problems with the, uh, the f- not the fire control system, but your uh, uh, jamming system. Hmm. Uh, but you had to go through 10 different committees and th- someone had to look at it and this one had to do with it. And that's what, that's what costs most of the money. I mean, is Well, time is money, as they say. Right, right. So is that what made Skunk Works so unique? I mean, was that Skunk Works what made that so efficient? Kelly's, Kelly's uh, motto pretty much was you give full authority to get the job done to the lowest common denominator. Hmm. If he can't get a gen... We'll find out what he does wrong, and we'll train him to do a better job, or we'll we'll give the job to somebody else. But they, the loyalty and the talent they had at, at the Skunk Works, and and even today, I mean, a lot. What made the Skunk Works famous worldwide? Those people are gone. We're dealing with a totally different generation, but and they're more the more security, not necessarily more security conscious. They just do things differently. And well, it's a lot easier to steal now than it was. You know, back in the day, you'd have, to, you'd have a satellite taking pictures from space. Now all these, the Chinese and the Russians just try to hack in and just steal it. Well, so it's, it's just a different type of espionage, I think. When I went, to, I, I went and met with Ben Rich at the Skunk Works, and this is 1974, 75 timeframe. And, you know, I called them up and said, I'm going to be in... The area, you know, you have some time. I like to just sit down, shoot the shit, whatever you want, you know, shoot the bull. Yeah. And he said, sure. So uh, he, made, he cleared everything. I, the day I went in there, I had a model of the D-21 drone, which was still classified up until not that many years ago. It's the unmanned Mach, you know, 3.4, 100,000-foot spy drone. It looks like a flying SR-71 engine, right. basically. Right. It's, a, it's our SR-71 engine with wings. 
Right. <laughs> yeah. It looks awesome. And it's, it's, it's actually a Mark Watt Ramjet. Uh, and I had a mod- quarter-inch model of it that I made for him. It was vacuum-formed. I made the base. A buddy of mine was the uh, visual presentation director at Dayton Hudson Marshall Fields. And uh, he made, he made the, the engraving for me and... Uh, and some other stuff that I used, you know, and I gave it to Ben. I had it in, I had it in my hand. I'm sitting in the lobby of the Skunk Works, and guys are coming out and pointing. The guy has, the guy has the model of, <laughs> of the little bird, and they wouldn't even say D21, the little bird. Oh, so that's, that's kind of the fun name for it, the little right, bird. I like right. that. At uh, 1982, Kelly Johnson was at Prom Center giving a talk. It was engineering week at Honeywell, Military Avionics Division at Ridgeway, you know, North Minneapolis, Nord- northern Missy, you know, Minneapolis. And he's up there talking, and he's talking about, and he said, you know, uh, speed costs money. How fast do you want to go? <laughs> he said, the Blackbird is designed to fly at Mach 3.24. And uh, we have the ability today, 1982-83 time frame, to build and design an airplane and go Mach 4. Mach 6, Mach 8, Mach 12, Mach 16. Speed costs money. How fast do you want to go? It's like drag <laughs> racing. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose. And he said, you know, we can talk about the A-12, the agency airplane. We can talk about the fighter version, uh, the YF-12. And we can talk about, of course, the SR. But we can't talk about the little bird. Yeah, but there's, and this is Kelly's word, there's, there's some model, there's some toy company in, in San Diego, that would be testers. Mm-hmm. Um, and some, some smart ass up here in the Midwest somewhere that's talking about it and has pictures of it, and I can't even mention the name. He was referring to me. <laughs> <laughs> and a couple of the engineers I was sitting with, I went in the back, they sort of looked at me and said, is he talking about you? And I went, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so at, at the end of the conference, everybody's left. There's three people in the prom center, except for employees that work for the prom center. There is the director of engineering, from Honeywell, who invited me. There's Kelly Johnson, and there's me. I have a, 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 a was it 11 by, uh, 11 by 16 uh, original print of an SR-71 that I took, and I had blown up. It was 16 by 20. And I had my, my marker, and I said, Kelly, would you sign my, my picture? Well, he starts giving me a bunch of static, and the, in, the director of engineering said, Kelly, we're the only three people here. He has his own picture. He has his pen. Sign it. <laughs> so he said, yeah, you know, to, to Jim Goodall, uh, all the best, you know, Kelly Johnson. So I have it at home. But I, and I have, it, I have it rolled up in the tube because I don't want it to fade, but it is yeah. fading. <laughs> That's what happens. I didn't get cibachrome. So Kelly, Kelly Johnson was a unique individual. Um, you didn't go over his head. You didn't uh, try to make money off the Blackbird or any of his programs in, unless he gave the permission. And that's why Francis Gary Powers was fired from the Skunk Works is because he had asked uh, Bob Gillen, the first guy to fly the SR, a lucky test pilot. He said, uh, and Powers flew the U-2. He flew the U-2 for the agency and also was a flight test pilot for, for the U-2 and a few other airplanes. He wanted to do a story on, on him being shot down over Russia. Tell the real truth. And he did, his, he did the book. Kelly came into his office about two days after it hit the streets, the book. And he said, you didn't get my permission 
threw the book on the, you know, the, into the trash can. He's, and there was two guards that said, you're clearing your stuff out, you're fired. Mm. And out the door he went. Can you give us a brief rundown of that story, of being, him being shot out down over Russia? Well, uh, what, was, what he was flying? and he was, a, he was in a U-2A, which was the original U-2. This yep. is May 1st, 1960, uh, which, is a big, which is a big day in, in Russia. It's, you know, they had the big May Day parades and stuff like that. Mm. Mm. May and Day. The first airplane, he was, he was flying out of Peshtwar, uh, Pakistan, the first airplane he was supposed to get into, they had, uh, they had some problems with the high-altitude restart system. He uses gaseous uh, hydrogen to relight at altitude. And typically, they would just cancel the pilot and cancel the airplane and go fly the next day. Uh, but he said, no, no, I'll take the backup airplane. Well, it's, it's rumored, no one knows for sure, but it's rumored that Congress was getting cold feet in funding the Blackbirds. And we're talking about $2 billion in 1962. It's a lot of money back then. They got their money's worth, trust me. <laughs> and uh, and the, the, the few people that knew about the program and saying, well, why, why, are, we, why are we funding this, this Mach 3 airplane when we have an airplane, the U-2, which is overflying Russia without problem? Uh, so maybe we don't need a Mach 3 airplane. We just use a U-2. Well, it's, it's thought, it's rumored by a lot of people that, that are in the know at the time that they said, okay, the U-2 is overflying the Soviet Union at will. We have to make it vulnerable. <gasps> and the, the, the standing order for the, for the CIA pilots, if you're shot down, you, you, you take the cyanide tablet or, or whatever, whatever else they had to, wow. you know, to end it. But self-preservation is pretty high in everybody's list. Mm -hmm. And the, the U-2 had flamed out at altitude, and powers had dropped down to about 35,000 feet to relight the engines because the high-altitude re relight system wouldn't work. So you're just gliding down so you can fire the engines right. back up. Yeah. Right. Engine, single engine. Pratt & Whitney ah, okay. at the time was... Uh, was uh, the early ones were J-57. Uh, the newer ones were J-75s, which were very, very powerful. And he was on his way back up to altitude when a SAM blew up behind him. And his elevators, that's the, the, the thing on the horizontal tail that makes you go up and down. The elevators had the airplane going up, so they were, they were up. The overpressure from the SAM that blew up behind him broke the elevators, and he lost control of the airplane. And, the air, and in the process uh, of losing control of the airplane, one of the wings broke off. So it's, he's going down like, uh, you know, not, not the maple, uh, little ma maple things that drop out yeah, of the yeah, sky. Yeah, yeah, little helicopters, little things. Yeah, seeds. yeah and that's yep. basically what he was doing. U-2 at the time did not have an ejection seat. Huh. They didn't think they would need it. And it was also weight. Everything was weight conscious on that airplane. So he opens the canopy... He, un, he un, unhooks his belt and everything, you know, his harness and everything else, and he gets thrown out of the airplane. That was his intent, except his oxygen line and his communication line are holding, or won't, let, won't break loose. So he, as this thing is whipping around, he had to pull himself back into the airplane, disconnect the oxygen uh, hose and the uh, communications uh, connection, 
and then go fly out free. He said the most terrifying part of the whole thing wasn't, wasn't getting hit by, with a Sam, wasn't the wing breaking off, it wasn't being thrown out and had to drag yourself back in, is when he landed on the ground, there was some rural Russian uh, farmer thought he was an alien and almost ran him through with one of these big three-pronged pit- pitchforks. <laughs> 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 so, so by, by Pow- uh, Francis Gary Powers uh, being shot down, uh, he's now a prisoner. Mm-hmm. The, the goal of whomever was responsible for uh, possibly sabotaging his U-2, now the U-2 is vulnerable. We need we need the SR seventy one. We need the A twelve. Ah, uh, we need the A twelve. Yeah, the SR wasn't wasn't on the horizon yet. It was being talked about, but it wasn't on the horizon. It was called the R twelve back then. So uh, uh, he's you know he's in prison for you know, fifteen or eighteen months. They have this crew swap. I think uh, Tom Hanks played the uh, the agent that went went to retrieve him, and they say that. Uh, he was, he was going to tell, he was, when he got fired from the Skunk Works, you know, a couple of years later, after he wrote his memoirs, uh, they were fearful that he was going to tell some, some stories outside of school. And someone, someone said that they, they believe his helicopter was sabotaged. There's no proof to that, but he was too good of a pilot to run out of gas. <laughs> uh, so wow. why was the SR-71 program closed down? Because it seems like even when it was closed down, it was still the most capable plane ever Politics. made. Politics. You know, those mm. bastards in Washington. I know all about them. Yeah. <laughs> Worth as rat bastards, yeah. Um, they're, they're always trying to find ways to kill the military, to gut the programs. An SR-71 flight, uh, not in real terms, because the airplane is paid for when you get it. Mm-hmm. The money's already been allocated. The guys that fly it, the guys that maintain it, they're getting paid 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whether they go to Chow or whether they go to Kadena, Okinawa, and work on the airplane. Yep. doesn't make any difference. So they've come up with some artificial numbers of, of what the cost per hour is. And they, they, I don't know where the hell they got the number at, but they said uh, two KC-135s and everybody there need to support the airplane and, and its spares and everything else. They estimate that the per hour cost and paper is over $200,000 an hour flight time. So they felt it was, it was using funds that could be used for the B, what ended up to be the B-2. Hmm. And it was, uh, the guy responsible for, for canceling it was General Larry Welsh. He was commander of, uh, no, he was uh, Air Force uh, Chief of Staff. And he had been turned down to fly the Blackbird when he was a major. He wasn't a good enough pilot. (laughs) And he replaced Jerry O'Malley, who was the first Air Force officer to fly an operational mission in the SR. And he loved the program. Yeah. But uh, General O'Malley was killed in a CT-39 crash in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And his second in command, which is Larry Welsh, now became Air Force Chief of Staff. And uh, he put the word out that Anybody that says anything positive about the program, I'll fire you, from e, whether you're an E-1 or an O-10, a four-star general. Uh, he would fire him. He said, but you want to say anything negative you want on the program, you can. He, he, it was his purpose and his job in his life. He was going to cancel the Blackbird program, whether we needed it or not. So in, in uh, the last 
The last flight of an operational airplane was on the 10th of March, 1990. In 1990, it was an interesting year. It was also the year in August, I think it was August 4th, that Saddam Hussein decided, eh, I like Kuwait. (laughs) And they needed a strategic reconnaissance airplane. Satellites are predictable. Airplanes aren't. So Air Force contacted Ben Rich, who was then the president, Kelly had retired, and he said, all the Blackbirds have been retired, spare, we still have the spare parts, and of the, we, we still have at least eight airplanes that we can make operational. How much time and money do you na- need to take, to bring one airplane out of retirement with all the sensors and crew? Ben said, give me, uh, give me a week. <laughs> came back a week later and he said, I need a blank check. I justify nothing to anybody. What I, whatever I want, I get. And I can have you an operational airplane ready for an operational mission in 15 days. said, hold that thought. Came back about three or four days later. He said, two airplanes. He said, I figured you say that. Uh, 30 days. And I'll have two operational SR-71s ready to go. So he's there, you know, he's sitting there with his thumb up his rear, uh, waiting for the government to come to a decision. And finally, in November of, I think it was November of 90, this is before Desert Storm started. It was Desert Shield at the time. Uh, the word came back since the, the program was really can- canceled by the Air Force Chief of Staff, Larry Welsh. To reinstate the program today would make him look bad. <laughs> so that rat, that rat bastard who had the program canceled, and they needed it. Yeah, they needed it. They didn't. Why didn't it. the U two? Why wasn't that good enough? Oh, they no, they were using U twos all the. But they U twos are vulnerable. They're slow. Yep. They fly about seventy five thousand feet max. Um, and Saddam had the capability of taking those out. If he right, he, I mean, but they can because you know, they're they, not stealth, right? No, yeah, no, and and they can look in with their cameras. They can look in a couple hundred miles. So all they have to do is fly the peripheral of of Iraq. Most everything in the middle is nothing, right? Um, but they, uh, I'm just kind of wondering why did they so badly want to get the SR-71 back at that time when they had the U-2? Because the SR-71 can fly directly over Baghdad, or. Tehran or wherever, right? With, yeah, without, without worrying about getting no consequences. Shot down, yeah, no consequences. So um, the program came to an end, and it it was reactivated in ninety four ninety five time frame. They uh, they were reactivated two airplanes. Uh, it was Det two at Edwards, and it was that they they flew it for about two years, and for a very very brief period of time. The president at the time was Bill Clinton, had the ability to redline individual line items on the budget. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things he did was redline the SR-71 program. Yep. Program came to an end. All the airplanes were dispersed to museums. That's one of the reasons why we had an A-12 here in Minneapolis for 15 years. And uh, all the airplanes were dispersed. Do you think you could make one fly again? How, how, oh, I mean... I can get a data plate off of off of a uh, Japanese Zero, 
and I could get it to fly again if I have enough money. <laughs> yeah, just write me the check, right? To build an airplane around it. Now, one one of the things I'm I'm I am just tickled about. It has to do with Elon Musk. Yeah. When Musk became a father for the first time, a little boy, and his favorite airplane in the whole wide world is the A12. And he gave, us, he gave his boy some weird numerical number, much like Prince. Mm-hmm. And I figured, well, I have nothing to lose. So I, I autographed my Blackbird book to him, and I sent it. I called a buddy of mine at Aviation Week, Guy Norris. I said, who is a point of contact if I mail it to that Elon may get this book? So he gave me the name and everything, and I sent it off priority mail, and I'm tracking it. Uh, it was supposed to arrive on a Thursday or something like that. It's now Monday morning. I'm retired. The phone rings at 7 o'clock. I look over. Shit, it's someone from California, so I just turned it off. So I got up. I uh, had my coffee. had my breakfast, and I check in my voicemail, and there's a call from California who was an unknown. Yeah. Probably a telemarketer. Yeah, yeah. So they're trying to sell me a, a warranty on my on my cor- Corvette, uh, and uh, it is Elon Musk's private secretary. She said, "I just wanted to call and, and let you know that Mr. Musk has your book. We had, we had, he came through the office as I was taking it out of the priority mail envelope, and he said." Is that for me? <laughs> and he said, apparently it's, you know, it's autographed to you and your son. He said, it's on his desk as we speak right now. Yeah. And he said, uh, please call Mr. Goodall and at his convenience, invite him and a few of his guests uh, to get a uh, guided tour of SpaceX facility in Hawthorne, California. So if it wasn't for the, Idiots in California locking down the whole state. I would have already done that. Yeah. Uh, but as soon as they loosen up, I have uh, a buddy of mine who is an artist for, for Disney, uh, Joel Payne, and his very, very dear friend is uh, Gene Roddenberry Jr. Oh, okay. So the three of us are going to go give SpaceX a tour. That's awesome. Yeah, I've, I've seen, I was in, uh, I've, I've seen some of the, the rockets kind of just standing there and stuff out at the, in, in Houston. Uh, but that's, that's as far as it's gone for me. Well, I've, uh, I've been to Cape Canaveral. I was in the vehicle assembly building when they had three Saturn V's being assembled. Wow. And it was just before uh, Apollo 12. Hmm. My dad was there when Apollo 13 was hit with lightning when it was on the pad. And they said, well, we'll just go anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like Challenger. Yeah. All the specifications says you cannot, we cannot guarantee the, the O-rings if the temperature has been below 31 degrees for more than four hours. And it was gotten down to 29 degrees, like six hours. Someone didn't want to look bad. But someone at NASA said, no, no, we have a schedule. We have to meet the schedule. Well, hmm. Okie doke. Well, you met it. Yep. You sure yep. met that schedule. That's for sure. 35 years ago. I know. Wow. And that was a very important day for me, too. I was at Mayo Clinic down in Rochester undergoing 11 hours brain surgery. Wow. <laughs> I told you I was deaf in one ear. I had a brain tumor, and they opened me up. They were in the middle of my head. So, uh, well, I'm glad nobody. you're here today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for yeah. sure. I wasn't supposed to make it off the, uh, off the operating room table. Wow. But I was too stubborn to die. <laughs> yeah. I hope somebody can stay, say that about me someday. Yeah, yeah that Chris guy, he was too stubborn to die. And I had books to write. 
There and you speaking go. of books, yes, yeah, we're I we talked about your book a little bit before we started the before we started the episode, but you've written a book on the seventy fifth anniversary of Skunk Works, right? I, now it's, it's my twenty seventh book. Uh, I specialize in historical monographs of naval ships, military aircraft, and submarines, machines. And I have friends of mine who say, why in the hell are you doing something with submarines? I said, they're black, they're stealth, and they're deadly. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been, that I've sounds been, like a film. <laughs> I, I've been to 400 feet deep in a ballistic missile submarine. Uh, I've been on 19 different submarines. For an Air Force guy, that's pretty good. Wow. And I have a request now into uh, Navy. I want to be on a Virginia-class submarine that has left Bremerton, Washington after refit, going back to Pearl Harbor. I want to be on that. Seven days underwater. They do, they do angles and dangles. They do emergency blows, all sorts of wild stuff. Yeah. They also go to test depth, which is 1,200 feet in a Virginia-class boat. I don't think I could do it. I think it's... Does it feel tight in there? Does it feel as tight and well, you, claustrophobic you, you, as I imagine it would be? You have no sense of motion. Hmm. None. Uh, as we're heading out of Hood Canal on the Henry M. Jackson, it was still a C-4 boat, and we're going out. It's going out on patrol, and all of a sudden, the whole, ship just, the whole boat just starts shaking. And I asked my escort, who was my daughter's boyfriend, I said, Eric, what's happening? And he said, well, it's 60,000 shaft horsepower going into reverse the, a little bit of cavitation. The, the, yeah, the floating bridge probably is stuck. Because they slide the, they slide the, the thing open. Mm-hmm. And uh, the tides are too high. Uh, the, the water's too deep for pilings. And they go down to 400, it's 400, 500 feet deep in the middle of the channel. So they, you know, they use a floating bridge. Like they do in Lake, they have two of them in Lake Washington. They had, when they were building the new I-90 bridge, uh, one, of them, one of the pontoons cracked and sunk. Okay. Actually, quite a few of them sunk. <laughs> and they had a gun with diving. That's deep diving. We're talking four to 500 feet. Wow. And that's... Uh, Those guys got big balls, yeah. too. Yeah, they do. They <laughs> do. So, I, I just... I, they're machines. They're yeah. incredible. But you, you, really don't, you really don't have a sense of movement. Uh, but I was up in the sail. We're going through the Straits of Juan de Fuca. Where's that? That's going outside of... Uh, Puget Sound hitting okay. the Pacific Ocean. Sure. That's the same place that Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman are on the top of the USS Alabama, which is uh, SSBN 731. And uh, when he lights a cigar and whatever, and I'm sitting up there and I'm thinking, well, holy buckets. I said, Hackman and, and uh, Denzel have absolutely nothing on me because I'm up, <laughs> I'm up on the sail and I look behind me. They're going on patrol. There's 100 hydrogen bombs on this boat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no shit. And wow, and on patrol, there's only three people in the world know where the sub's at: the captain, the XO, and the navigator. No one in the Pentagon, no one anywhere else has any idea where that sub is. It's in it's in 150,000 square miles of of the area of responsibility in the North Pacific. Who gives them their orders? They're just told to go out and patrol. Oh, so they just really? go, go for it. This, no, somewhere in this 150,000 miles? They'll, they'll go, they'll go, they'll that's, go, full, that's autonomy not usually given to anyone in the military. Right. They go down to 700 feet, typically, and they go at four to five knots. All they're doing is go this way, do a 180 to go this way, go do another 180 to go back. Wow. And at least once a day, sometimes more of the day, there, there are places on the ocean floor that they pass over, and I don't know how they identify where they're at, 
but there are precise locations to the second, you know, longitude and latitude wise. And they'll go over and they'll hover over that point and update their, their uh, gyros. And every time you update your gyros, you reduce the error rate significantly. So when they go out on the first day, if they were to launch, if, if we were to go to war on day one, now they're you know, probably within 30 or 40 feet of where they want to hit. With hydrogen bombs, close counts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at, the, at the end of a 72, that's typically a 72-day pr- patrol, they're down to probably a meter, meter and a half. Wow. Uh, their, their, their error pop probability. So it's, and now they built 18 Ohio boats. They converted. What's an Ohio boat? I don't know what that is. That is a 560-foot long, 18,000-ton submerged ballistic missile submarine with 24 launch tubes. Now, on a D-5 boat, which is the newest version of the Ohio boat, they have, uh, they, because of salt, they had to plug four of the 24 tubes. So they only have 24, only 20 tubes they can use. And at one time before salt, a D-5 Triton II missile can carry 14 275 kiloton warheads times 24. Wow. So it can basically destroy the, the world. entire world. Yes, yes. That's terrifying. And if they wiped out all our bombers, all our fighters, all our defenses, there's two Ohio boats on patrol at all times. There's one in the Pacific, there's one in the Atlantic. And, and, and the, the ones out of Bangor, Washington, on Hood Canal can hit all their Russian targets and never leave the Delta Pier. Hmm. So these guys don't really have any communication with the outside world while they're running. No. Until they, I mean, do they come up and check every once in a while and kind of do like a passive, like watch CNN for five minutes and no, see no. if the world's going <laughs> no. to shit? No. You know what I mean? No, there's... <laughs> There's, there's, guy, there's, there's guys that uh, uh, were submerged, and when they came back, uh, you know, something significant had happened. Like, you know, there was a, an election, or there was an assassination, or there was an explosion, or an earthquake, or sure. whatever. Um, they have no communication with the outside world. Right. Now, they, every once in a while, if, if, yeah, depending on where they're at, I know my daughter got all excited one day. She got a call from Eric. He said, where are you calling from? You, you've been gone for 30 days. He said, yeah, we're, we're, in, some, we're, we're in the Inland Passage in Alaska somewhere, and um, there's, a, there's, a, there's some equipment you know, near Ketchikan that I don't know what, what, it's, what it's used for, but it's, the submarines will go up uh, next to the, whatever this thing is. And I don't know if it degausses the, the hull, if it's a communication device. I don't know what it's used for, but they surfaced. And, it, and the, the uh, uh, captain got on the 1MC and he said, anybody who want to make a phone call, you know, we, have a, we have a strong cell phone signal, go, on, you know, go topside. There's about 30 guys up there with cell phones talking to their girlfriends <laughs> or their wives or whatever. I said, where are you calling from? He said, I don't have an idea. Wow. <laughs> no, it's cold. And there's a lot of mountains, uh, and there's whales out here, and and, and yeah. uh, orcas and whatever. So how do these? How do they get instructions to launch the nuclear weapons? Like how do they? Well, that's we what I'm wondering. Well, well, if they're yeah. not in communication with everybody, and the entire you know chain of command is wiped out by 
a nuclear attack on Washington. When these come up, guys come up and surface, are they instructed to? No, in in, nor- in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, they have the extremely low frequency communication center. I think it's about a hundred square mile grid. The wires are in the ground, and it transmits through the earth. Okay, and they can get an emergency action message at uh, saying, you know, go to the service or go up, go up to communications depth. And you you you'll launch a buoy with an antenna on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll get they'll get the skinny of what the uh, message was, and then uh, and then the shit goes down. Yeah. Wow, that's horrifying. <laughs> I mean, what? No, no. What it is? It's a deterrent. Of right? course, of course, it is. It's 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 a it's like being a a hot chick with a huge bodyguard. You just don't fuck oh, with absolutely. her. Yeah. You just don't. You just don't fuck with her yeah. because this dude is going to beat the living shit out of you yeah. and you're going to yeah. regret it. Yep. It's, it's, now, what does does uh, China and Russia have this? Are they doing the similar things? Or how many different countries have? Is anyone close to us on, on this? Well, on, on my on my first submarine book, which is very similar to the B2 and the, and the Blackbird book that I sh- showed you guys, I, uh, I put in Know Your Adversaries. So I have all the Russian subs. They have the uh, the Borla classes, their newest one. Uh, th- that holds uh, uh, 20, 20 missiles. Uh, before that, they had the Typhoon, which is huge. That's like the hunt for Red October, right? Right, right. Yeah. They, they built seven of them, and there's only one uh, still operational. It's used just for testing. Hmm. And I don't know, you know why they did it. You, know, you can actually, there's, there's pictures of guys going to one of, one of the sub bases, and they're just civilians, and they've gotten on to a, a typhoon boat, just wandered on, taking pictures. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but the, the new Borla class is, is their newest ballistic missile submarine. The Chinese have uh, a version of what would be considered, uh, I think they got the model from Ravel of the USS George Washington, and then scaled it up for a ballistic missile submarine, and it's so noisy that the sonar guys in, in Hawaii, if, if the sub is up tied up to you know, the, the pier there at Pearl Harbor, if they had the sonar on, they could hear, they could hear the Chinese boomers starting up. They're just, they just clank and noise. And wow. The, the Ohio boats... They weren't able to steal the information that they needed to quiet the town, I take it. Well, the, and the same with the Russians. Uh, they're, re- they're really good... This is the Russians at building flying tractors uh, <laughs> and stuff because they're they're taking they're taking people off off the farm. These are the guys who are maintaining these airplanes. Now it may be better now with with the Sukhoi fifty seven, which is really a pretty airplane. Uh, Russians make pretty airplanes; they fly well. Uh, they they have really good metallurgy. Uh, great airplanes, great women. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you could have a panel. And rather than having a, a zip, I mean, a, a uh, oh, I'm not even sure what the hell you call them anymore. It's been so long. But uh, an attachment to hold the panel on, mm-hmm. uh, you know, centered and everything looks good. No, they'll, they'll just take one big uh, screw with a washer and just put it in all four corners. Right. <laughs> uh, it's not elegant. No. Yeah. But it's, it, it works. Right. Uh, we refine it. Everything, even stuff that has no reason to be refined, we refine everything to its nth degree. And that's why the B-2 costs $1.2 billion or $2.1 billion per airplane. 
And the reason why the B2 is so expensive is the money that was allocated was allocated to build 133 of them. And they only built 22, 21 of them. Mm. So that all that, all that production cost, R&D cost, that's normally be spread out over 133 airframes. Right, has been condensed down. Down to 20. So is there, when you look, you talk about why the SR-71 was canceled and why, you know, we only have a certain amount of those and then the price is this and then the other thing. You look at what China's doing with their Navy, which is catching up to us, honestly, right? I mean, in numbers, in numbers, in size. Is well, this because they can just write checks that nobody's, nobody's paying attention? They can just spend whatever money they want? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, you argue. With How do we compete with that? We, 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 you argue with us, we'll send you to Wuhan. Work in the markets. Oh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah. Or you end up with the Uyghurs up north, you know? Yeah. yeah. So are we, are we going to fall behind, do you think? No. No? No. We have, we have things that are going off in the desert and things that are going off in Lockheed that I have absolutely no knowledge of. And any, any knowledge I have on anything, I will, I'm freely, you know, really, I'll, I'll talk about. Uh, and it's, it's, I know it's, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of frustrating when, when I know things are out there and I've, I've been at the fence line at Area 51 and Tonopah test range 80 times in the, in the last 40 years. I helped put Rachel on the map, the little alien. I've been there. I, there's a picture of me next to the little alien and <laughs> I actually drove up to the, the back gate. With all the cameras. There's a million cameras right there. I drove right up to it. I got a picture with my car there. But that's and, not the back gate area 51. That's the back gate of the bombing range. Aha. Uh-huh. You were north of. Well, I felt pretty good being oh, back no, there. Oh, no, no, it's, it's cool. <laughs> and then a plane flew over me like five minutes later. I'm driving away. A plane, I don't know what it was, banked off. and was, I felt they probably didn't. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's. They probably weren't checking me out, but I'd like to think they were. In 1964, when I was at Edwards, we had to, I had to go install some equipment. They didn't say where. And then we were in a Fairchild F-27, turboprop, high wing. It's a Dutch airplane. And uh, we flew for 90 to 100, between 90 and 120 minutes. So hour and a half, two hours. We landed at a base. Uh, we had buses on either side of the airplane, so you couldn't see anything. They said, get out of the airplane, walk straight into the door, hangar. Don't go looking around. <laughs> So I think I was at Area 51. I was there for five hours, but I didn't see anything. I heard stuff. Too bad you weren't nine years old and there wasn't just a curtain and a little sign that says, don't look back. <laughs> this is true. This is true. And uh, I, 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 I've, I've had some incredible reactions to, to me being in, in areas where I you know, should or should not be. I don't, I don't knowingly break the law because... One, they're not going to shoot me. They may want to, but they're not going to shoot me. But they can really make your life really miserable. I mean, there's some guys from the Netherlands drove past the sign and said, uh, restricted area, no entry, yeah. use of deadly force authorized. Yeah. And uh, they went all the way into the foothills down to the guard shack, and uh, they were arrested. Their car was impounded and told, towed to Pinoche, which is 100 miles away. This is a rent a car. Uh, they were in discussions with the security people for I think two or three days, and then they uh, they put him in a windowless van and drove him back to Las Vegas. Now these guys had to go retrieve their rent a car. They're not even sure where Pinoche is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're not even sure they can pronounce the name Pinoche. 
Does stuff still happen at Area 51? Or is it kind of a more of a covered legend? An urban legend almost? There is more stuff going on Area 51 than you can think of. I don't have a picture of it with me, but I have a picture of, of the Northrop Grumman B-21 Raider in the okay. air flying with a B-2. Uh, a buddy of mine shot it. Uh, he just thought it was two B-2s, and it, would, it was light blue on lighter blue and, you know, and white. I mean, way up there, 35, 38,000 feet. So he sent me a, a, a 600 DPI uh, image of it, about 10 frames that he shot. And I, I'm just using, I'm using Photoshop. I went uh, auto color, auto tone. Uh, just making no, it pop no, so you can no, see it. No, auto color, auto uh, contrast, auto tone. When I hit auto tone, all of a sudden the sky went dark blue and this, this Delta Wing Batmobile with only three trailing edge points pops up. And it's the B-21. It has about 125-foot wingspan. Uh, it looks to be four-engined, single bomb bay, designed for high altitude. It probably looks like the original B-2 bomber before they wanted to go uh, be able to go low-level penetration as well. That's why they uh, has five trailing edge points and a beaver tail that goes like this to dampen this is, out. This is a nuclear bomber, oh, absolutely. basically. This is, yes. this is fly to Beijing tomorrow. Yes, yes. Yeah. Is this, do they have these flying around like they do the, like they have the submarines? No. Just around, no. or these are grounded most of the time? Uh, training flights, most, most of the flying the, the, the B-2 guys do on the simulators. It's a very, very expensive asset, and they crashed one at Guam. Uh, it had rained really, really hard. The airplane had been outside, which is that's where airplanes <laughs> supposed to live. And apparently, the heaters in this in the pedal uh, ports that determine pitch and yaw, uh, the heaters uh, failed, didn't turn on, and that, they bring the temperature up to about a thousand degrees to make sure no noise, no moisture could be in there. And what was happening, mm. there was moisture in, in, the, in the static pedal tubes, which fed wrong information to the, to the computer that flies the airplane. The pilots tell the computer, I want to turn this way. And the computer <laughs> says, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And uh, but fortunately, both guys got out. And it's a, uh, you know, they lost Blackbird with uh, pitch and yaw gyros uh, uh, wired incorrectly. And they lost an F-117 with the pitch and yaw gyro uh, outputs were switched. Messed up, yeah. And, uh, and so, some of the crashes, we were talking earlier about Blackbird crashes. Yeah. Uh, Mel Vavaditch was flying an A-12. And it's, it's the, he'd been flying it for a while, but this is the, mine's 128, this is 129. It's the ninth A-12. And Mel was very, very... Uh, safety conscious i mean he goes through his checklist and everything is ready i mean he's ready if something turns to snot he's ready to leave um <laughs> and he's at he's at the you know, far end of the runway at area 51 he's going he's going through his checklist everything is everything is according to plan uh he's getting a thumb up from the uh you know, from the you know the ground crew he starts his takeoff roll everything is normal as he lifts up as soon as the oleos are fully extended on the main gear the stabilization augmentation computer takes over and flies the airplane. Wow. And what had happened, 
they had when they had rewired it when after Jim Eastham had all the wiring burn up. Yep. This was the first flight of this airplane after they had totally rewired the airplane. Uh, they had the outputs on the flight control computer. You have an output for pitch. You have an output for yaw. And it was reversed. <laughs> oh. So it, when you pull back in the stick, you had, you, you had yaw. When you go back you know, to overcorrect on yaw, you had pitch. Oh, my goodness. Well, on a video game, all you do is hit start, go to the options, and invert. <laughs> and then you're all set. Right, right. And Mel, Mel, <laughs> now the airplane is, the airplane is uh, turned over 90 degrees. He's about, um, he knew he had to eject. He's 250 feet off the ground. <laughs> so he ejects. and they're, Sideways. Uh, there, yeah, there had been a uh, heavy storm uh, earlier that month. This is in December, uh, 65. And it, uh, no, 64, excuse me. And there's about four inches of ice on Groom Dry Lake. Oh. There's been guys out there in a boat. Yeah. Water's this deep with a pushing pole. <laughs> <laughs> Just for shits and giggles. So he, he ejects. He never leaves his seat. He, he hits the, uh, the ice and just skids. <laughs> the, the airplane comes over and almost lands on top of him. Oh. Now he's in, his, he's in his seat. He's unhooking from his seat. And he can't feel his legs. He said, oh, shit, I, got my, I broke my back. But I'm not going to burn to death. So he's, he's trying to, you know, he's, with his elbows, he's trying to you know, get away from the fire. It's also melting the ice. Oh, good. Bill Park was in the uh, soft truck, supervisor flying. Uh, and he was their chief test pilot for Lockheed. He come, he come running up in, in the uh, pickup truck. And he's coming right at uh, Mel. And he hits the brakes. He's on melting ice. He went zipping by, he almost hit Mel, Mel. He went zipping by him about a quarter of a mile. <laughs> Turned around and came back. The ambulance comes over there real slow. The two paramedics are there. They try to pick up Mel up. They drop him three or four times. Oh, good. Yeah. Insult to injury, that's he, called. Yeah, he's actually getting more damage, getting hurt worse <laughs> by the medics trying to get him to the ambulance. Finally, he realized he wiggles his toes and he was, his back was just shocked. It wow. wasn't broken. So he gets on his hands and knees and he crawls over to the ambulance and gets in the ambulance. So Kelly flew out that day. He said, I want you to go into the wreckage. I want you to pull out the, uh, the flight computer. Mm -hmm. And he says, I, I know what the problem is. And sure as shoot, and they pulled it out, and they had the wrong connectors in each one. And he said, okay, the not modification effective immediately. We're changing the plugs. So you can't switch them, yeah. So you can't switch them. Now, I think of the, are the wiring harnesses on these similar to uh, stuff that they built, like the Saturn V, where the, everything's just white? Yes. So Why yeah. is that? Because there's, it, it, how many colors can you have? It's heat, temperature, it's a special coating. Um, wow. But there's, there's numbers. All okay. the wires have numbers printed on them. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, I don't, I, mean, I did cable splicing where I got an 1800 pill cable, and everything is blue, orange, green, brown, slate. Yeah, it's I easy. mean, it's, it, it's, it makes sense. Those, yep. they don't make sense. But you have to, like, pin test everything if, yeah, to make much. sure it's correct. Pretty much. Sounds wow. like a nightmare. Yeah. So <laughs> It is my nightmare. I hate wiring. <laughs> so so uh, Mel got checked out by the medics. He's okay. So he and Bill Park had a, uh, had a flight test for Skunk Works. They fly up to Beale Air Force Base in Marysville, California. That's where the SR-71s are operating out of. And they had the simulator there. They only had one air. They only had two airplanes at Beale, but they had the sim. So knowing what they knew, uh, Mel Vavadis said, "Okay, let's set up the the 
uh, simulator to emulate exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. And knowing it, he said he tried five times, he crashed all five times. Wow. Even knowing what the problem is, because it's so automatic, your body just can't. Yeah, your muscle memory there is, right. how do you invert right. yourself right. like that? So he was disgusted. He told, he told Parks, I'm going to go to Ops and get a cup of coffee. I'll be back in about 20 minutes. Came back about 45 minutes later, and you know, Park is there you know, having a cup of coffee. There, Sim, and um, Mel said, "Well, how'd you do?" And Park said, "I had two good, uh, good takeoff and landings, not a problem." And Bill Park said, "Bill, uh, Mel's face just melted." And then all of a sudden, Park just started laughing. No, I crashed it. <laughs> <laughs> he was just defeated. Uh, wow. Well, man, it's uh, it's been great having you on the podcast. It's the stories are awesome, and uh, let me talk. You know, I haven't talked about my book. Yeah, well, let's talk more. Let's talk more about the book. Okay, I'm. Uh, I hated term papers in school, in college. I you couldn't get me to write 250 words, and I'm my 27th book is now at at the at the printers, and it is 75 years of the Lockheed Skunk Works. I cover 43 programs. There's probably 43 I don't know about, but I do cover 43 <laughs> programs from the XP-80 all the way up to combat to the compact fusion reactor. Now, that's something that no one's even talking about. The uh, latest project I know of is the HTV-2, which is the hypersonic yeah, unmanned I cover, vehicle. Yeah, I cover, I cover that. Okay. But the compact fusion reactor, they were, uh, when I sent my stuff off to the publisher a year ago, you agree in March. Uh, they were up to version number five, and they figure at version number eight, they're going to have a non-radioactive, uh, non-polluting power source that will fit into a 40-foot container, sealed up, can power a, a city of 100,000 homes. Wow. This sounds like science fiction. I mean, isn't and what what and one thing they, they I I sent a thing off to Aviation Week saying that hey wait a second you're talking about hydrogen you're talking about electric propulsion with batteries how stupid is that uh, you know you get a fire in a lithium battery it's yeah, over it keeps yeah. going right uh, they could on a wide body you know a triple seven or uh, uh, even a seven eight seven. They could put a the fusion reactor in the lower cargo compartment, and they could take the uh, engines off the off the wing. They can put two big fans, they're shelled, but you know, yeah. uh, uh, and they could fly an a electric powered, uh, wide bodied commercial airliner around the world until everybody died of old age. <laughs> What's interesting is they probably are already doing that. If, now, you, if we know a little bit, like if we have an inkling of it, odds are they're doing it. Ben, ben, right? ben Rich, again, I go back to him. He was, uh, I don't know how I got on his list of people that he liked to talk to. But just before, 10 days, about 10 days before he died, Ben told me, he said, said uh, we were talking about our friend John Andrews. He had sent, he'd passed away with cancer. And ben was dying of esophageal cancer. He's at USC Medical Center in L.A., and he said, Jim, we have things out in the desert that's 50 years beyond what you can comprehend. Huh. 
Not what you think you can build in 50 years, but what you can comprehend. And if you've seen movies like Star Trek or Star Wars, we've been there, done that, or decided it wasn't worth the effort. Now, at a, US, a UCLA graduate uh, conference of, of engineers, Ben was the keynote speaker. And he talking about technology stuff that's you know, the, in the classified environment. He said, today, this is 1994, 95 timeframe, said, today, we have the ability to take ET home. But they won't, they're, they're, all that technology is buried in black uh, budgets and uh, the general public is left in the dark. So they're just leaving Elon Musk to flail around doing what he's doing, really? Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. Just like he's just wasting his time when it's already all been developed. No, I think Elon Musk is, is part of the solution. Um, I mean, I like the guy. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying. Why do you he's, do? I mean, he's going to give me a tour of his facility. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying what he's doing is beneath what these guys have already done and developed and, and figured out. Someone should just maybe like slip a note under his door that says, hey, maybe well, try this. I think I think he's aware of it, and, and some of the things you know, we're gonna, it's not, it's not has nothing to do with politics. But uh, Donald Trump's father was a f- and grandfather was a friend of uh, Nikola Tesla. And when when Nikola passed away, he had like eighty four trunks of books and manuscripts and, and designs that that he had that disappeared. And uh, it's thought that uh, President Trump's grandfather and father uh, absconded with all, all the equipment, with, you know, along with the U.S. government. Right. Um, and he's, he's apparently familiar with a lot of the stuff that uh, Tesla was working on. Um, and it's, I, was, I was a docent at Kitt Peak National, Lab, uh, National Observatories in Tucson. They have... 24 telescopes. Uh, they have 22 optical telescopes from a 12 from a 12 inch to a 13 foot uh, four meter mirror. And the 2.1 meter uh, telescope was being used by Caltech for five years, looking at a very very small part of our galaxy, the Milky Way, uh, using adaptive optics. Uh, they shoot a uh, ultraviolet laser up in the sky, and at 18,000 feet, it has to be a specific di- diameter, and they monitor it with a sensor, and they adjust this deformable mirror mm. 1,200 times a second. So it has this, the same quality and optical clarity as, as uh, the Hubble. Wow. And over the course of, of five years, they, they discovered and cataloged in a small section of our Milky Way 8,000 exoplanets. What's an exoplanet? It's a planet that oper- that's going around another star outside of our solar system. And just before, just before I, I uh, quit volunteering, I didn't like the... They had, they had a new volunteer coordinator, and, and I don't like people who talk down to people, so I left. But that's neither here nor there. We had a meeting of all the astronomers, all the docents, and all the support staff at Kitt Peak. And this, the keynote speaker was one of the top people from the National Science Foundation. And he had just gotten back from a conference of all the astronomers that are looking for exoplanets. And they, you know, it was a week-long, 10-day-long conference. 
and they calculate based on best guess. That's what it is, a guess. They calculate for every star in the universe, which is a big number. There's one and a half planets. And out of that incredibly large number of planets, they, they figure there are two billion, and that's with a B, two billion Earth-like planets orbiting a similar brown dwarf star like our sun in the inhabitable zone with liquid water. Well, it's that, it, and in quote, an infinite system, that number is inevitable. And to quote Jodie Foster's character in Contact, yeah. if we're the only ones, what a waste of space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's true. I mean, inevitably in an infinite system, there's going to be... There's more life out there. As I, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I don't know how, how much longer you're going to go or what, you know, where you're going to cut it off at. Um, Bob Lazar is a friend of mine. And who's Bob Lazar? Bob Lazar is the guy who was, came out of the black doing reverse engineering on the propulsion system for alien spacecraft. Okay. George Knapp from KLAS out of Channel 8 out of Las Vegas did a number of interviews with him when he was silhouetted, just, you know, just his... His silhouette altered his voice, and he went by Jarrett and talked about uh, one. He worked on one of nine aliens craft in a place called S4, which is on the southwest corner of the Papoose Range near Area 51. Right. And he was there for almost a year, and he just, uh, they, were, they were drugging him when they left to make him you know, lose their memory until they came back. Um, he was threatened, and he finally, he finally felt he, he, to save his life and to, you know, to you know, keep his head on straight, he had to go public. And no one's, ever just, no one's ever been able to prove him a liar, prove him wrong. Now, I met Bob Lazar the day I photographed the F-117 for the first time, and I was the first civilian to photograph it. I was with John Lear. His daddy was Learjet. And that must have been early, mid-'90s. It was yeah? Yeah, 1989. Okay. And uh, I'm in Las Vegas. John and I are heading to Tonopah. We're going up US 95 near Scotty's Junction. And I've F- been there. And an F-117 flies right over us. And no one had seen the F-117 yet. I almost drove, I almost drove the car off the, off the road. <laughs> <laughs> Holy bucket shit. So we went to, went to Tonopah. We uh, had a bite to eat. And then we went down uh, US 6, heading towards Warm Springs, which is uh, the beginning of the extraterrestrial highway. About 14 miles outside of Tonopah is uh, the Tonopah Test Range turnoff. It's operated by Sandia. And you go down 18 miles uh, to the gate, and you go about two miles down the dirt side of, of the chain link fence, and you're looking right down at Tonopah Test Range base. And we're sitting there, and all of a sudden I see a little white dot and a big black dot way, way to the north, and it's heading towards us. It turns out... That was an F-117. First time, I mean, I'd saw, seen one earlier in the day, but uh, this is, no one had photographed it. I have my camera out, and I'm, I'm, this thing is coming towards me, and I'm photographing it, and it's, it's, it was, you'd be like I was 11 years old and seen a naked woman for the first time. <laughs> my whole body was surging, and I, I, took, I, took, I used all, six, all 36 exposures, a print film. This is way before digital. And... Uh, Fine, we left. Uh, we had, we you know, had a bite to eat at Little Alien, and we you know, heading back to Vegas. We, we, knew, we knew we were going to get there until after 9 o'clock. And there used to be things called photomats, where you can br- drop your film off, 
It's where they it's where they can buy coffee now. And the little baristas out in the parking lot. <laughs> and time I got back to Vegas, all the photo mats were closed, and I was just I was disappointed. I have to wait for the next day. And Bob said, uh, John said, I got a new friend. Just moved here from Albuquerque. Think you'll enjoy him. He's interviewing for a job out in the desert. He won't tell me what, but he's uh, interviewing with Edward Teller uh, and really high ups. So a guy comes over. Ah, yes. Yeah, I've been all the way down that. I've been all the way down that, that road a good 40 or 50 times. I mentioned that I was there. This is where I was. I'm sorry, I just wanted to show you. Yeah. It's this spot is where I, is, is where I oh, was. That's, that's entrance to the bombing range. That's the bombing range. Yeah, and that's okay. The, and that's, that's the $10 million four-lane dirt road. I was saying that is the nicest gravel road yeah. I've ever been on. Yeah, I was going 90 miles an hour on a gravel road. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Go, I was going... <laughs> You know, as you as you as you come in, uh, you go over Hancock Summit, and you come in Tipico Valley, and you can see the back road area fifty one, uh, and that's uh, John and I the, on this same trip. We're doing uh, we're we're going down that road. I, I have a rent a car. We've been using it as an all terrain vehicle. It was a, a <laughs> it was a brand new Cadillac Seville. Oh sure, air conditioning worked great. I'm oh sure. yeah, absolutely. And we we go past the signs saying uh, restricted area, you know, no trespassing, all this other stuff. And we go into the foothills to this guard shack, and you can see the whole base. And we know exactly what we're doing. And one and this one guard comes out, very nice young guy, um, in black uh, utilities. You know, he has his hand on his nine millimeter mm-hmm. Beretta. Said, what are you guys doing? So, <laughs> so we're bird watchers and we saw this road. You just want to see where it went. I said, mm-hmm. well, this is as far as you can go. And then John said, hey, can I take a picture of your guard shack? And about the same time, another guard is coming out of the guard shack who is a reject from the NFL because he's too big. <laughs> <laughs> he had, I mean, his, he had no neck and went from his ears down to his shoulders. <laughs> right. And he's putting a 30 round clip into his M16. And he uh-huh. loaded the chamber. <laughs> Maybe I won't take a picture of the guard and, shack. Uh, he heard John say, "Can I take a picture of your facility?" And the, and the nice guy said, "No." And then the big, then the big guy said, "And if you take a picture of this uh, building, you're going to be interviewed from by some very, very nasty people for a long time, <laughs> <laughs> and you're not going to have a very good time at it. Do you understand?" <laughs> John, time to go. <laughs> but one of the thrilling things that happened when we were going down this road, we're doing about 75 or 80, yeah. an A7, uh, they call them slugs, um, stubby little ugly fellow, you know, um, flew over us at about 50 feet at about 500 knots. We about blew us off the road. Huh. But that was thrilling. I mean, knocked the, you know, it, it, it's four lane road, but moved, we moved all the way over, you know, four lanes as it came by. And, and he, the uh, valley, typical valley, is, has a dome-shaped valley. And we're on one side of the dome, and, and the, A, the A7 went and disappeared, and then went straight up, spi- spiraled up to about 10,000 feet, and then headed into Area 51. Wow. And uh, so they knew we were coming. I'm just <laughs> looking. I wanted to show. I, I think I was on the road that you're talking about. I just have to find the, the photo. I don't know if this will look familiar to you at all, but this is the, that road. It looks like the right road. Yeah, I mean, it's it is. I cannot explain, Jake. You've not been there, but it is the night. It's it might as well just be tarmac. Interesting. It's, it's the nicest road ever. Yeah. And I I don't know what they're bringing in and out of there, well, but that's well, a pretty nice road. Well, there's there's two there's two roads to get into. Actually, three roads if you want to be technical about it. Uh, 
you have the back road, which is off of Hancock Summit in Tippecanoe Valley as you come down off, you know, off the summit, or you come up through Mercury off of US 95. And uh, that's, that's the way most everything was hauled in. Sure. All, you know, all the Blackbirds were, were trucked into Area 51. Uh, what are the, do we have any time? Yeah, man, we just, it's fine. Okay. Uh, this guy over here gets antsy. He's, you hear his I'm, ch- I'm just fidgeting my back. Hurts. He's got a squeaking chair. <laughs> and it's, oh. it's he's got his but he's okay. Go ahead. We got time. Uh, when they were moving the first Blackbird from Area 51, I mean from Burbank to Area 51, they did a study and they came to the conclusion that the quietest time of, on the L.A. freeways and traffic was between 2 and 3 a.m. on a Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. Okay. So they left with two very, very large uh, vehicles, uh, one carrying the fuselage minus the outer wing panels and the other one carrying the wing panels, which are huge to begin with. And they head out on, on Interstate 5. They head up north to Gorman. They turn over, uh, I think it's Route 160, heading towards Mojave. And they're coming around a, they're coming around a bend, and one of the big trailers, and these things are... Uh, about 40 feet wide and about 110, 115 feet long. And as, as they were moving it, there was, there was a guy in a pickup truck. It, it put a big scrape along the side of this guy's pickup truck. And it was a, it was a beater. It was a farm truck. Yeah. <laughs> and the CIA guys that were there went up to him and they said, okay, uh, we're sorry we damaged your truck. Still drivable, but we're sorry we damaged it. Tell you what, we're going to buy it from you. And, they, and I, I heard this sum of $10,000. This is 1962. <laughs> they said, we'll buy it to you. And well, by the way, you can keep the truck. But if you say anything, you mention anything, you wish you, wish you weren't born. <laughs> <laughs> people, so, don't, people don't understand the full weight of the federal government. So, they really don't. So the guy said, see what? Said, that's, yeah. the right, that's the right answer. Yeah. And he, ne- he, never, he never broke his silence. Yeah. never broke his silence. Wow. But to, to move, they moved 15 A-12s. I wonder what the story was when he got home to his wife and there's a big gouge out of the side of his truck. No, what was, happened to your truck? The better question is, why do you have 10 grand in your pocket? <laughs> it, was, right? it, was, it was probably a 1949 Chevy and it was probably filled with cow dung and hit things <laughs> all over it. Yeah, probably never even I mean, noticed. It, it was it was a utility truck he used on the farm. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And they run it until it, the wheels fall off, and they, mm-hmm. they park it in, out in the field and go get another one. Right, or they bury it. <laughs> yeah, they bury them in the yeah. field. Just dig a hole and throw the truck in there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's that's. I mean, there's so many funny things about the whole Blackbird program, and. Uh, Oh, no, I didn't finish my, my thing with, with uh, Bob Lazar. Yeah. So I meet him for the first time at John Lear's house. He hasn't gone to work out in the desert, but he's been in Vegas for about, about a month. Bought a house, and he has a C-41 processing unit. Help, you know, he, he, he for set, film developing. Yeah. For, for primarily for, uh, for realtors. Oh, okay. Yeah, because the first, first guy bought his house from him said, Gene Huff, he said, uh, I, don't, I said, I have a bunch... I have a bunch of pictures I need to take of the, of the house and whatever. Um, and it, it ended up that yeah, Bob actually went out and bought a C41 processing unit mm-hmm. and he entered his house. So, it, so I, I told him, I said, hey, uh, I, have, I photographed the F-117. I'm the first guy in my neighborhood to do that. 
Probably the first guy, <laughs> period, civilian wise. It's a big neighborhood. Yeah. And he said, well, I have a processing unit at home. Let's jump in my car. John lived near uh, Sunrise Ridge, near, near the Mormon t- uh, temple, uh, north of town, north of Vegas. Bob lives off of West Charleston. So we jump in his car, and we're, we're not more than a half a block away from Lear's house. And he, he stops, and he looks at me, and he said, you know, I feel really bad for Lear. I said, why is that? He said, that son of a bitch believes in UFOs. How stupid is that? He says, I'm a nuclear physicist. If I can't prove it mathematically or put my hands on it, it doesn't exist. It doesn't sound like a guy with a very good imagination. Well, he's the one who got hired to do reverse engineering. (laughs) 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 Yeah, he's... And he's, yeah, he's quite a character. And we've, we've been friends. I've been friends with him for almost 40 years. Is there any technology out there that we can look at today and go, yep, that's something that they took from something they learned, like what, what Lazar was working on in the military or government use or anything like that? Well, uh, there's a book out. It's, it's written by an Army bird colonel. It's called The Day After Roswell. And in there, he identifies uh, all sorts of products that they had, uh, they had, they pulled out of the crash site, that, and it was his job to transfer that technology to industry to see if they can reverse engineer it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, where the, that's where the transistor came from. That's where ones and zero coding came from. And... Because uh, we didn't have anything. The transistor just did kind of appear out of nowhere. 1947, beginning in 1947, when we still had vacuum tubes like you have over there. Right. <laughs> By the end of 47, we had integrated circuits. We had superconductivity. It took DuPont, it took DuPont 15 years to reverse engineer Kevlar. Because that was one of, that was one of the, the items that was in, that was in the, the Roswell crash. Right. Um, and it's just, there's, there's so much out there that, that needs to be released. We have the ability to cure, I mean, based with, on Ben Rich and other comments he made, not just to me, but other people, we have the ability, we can cure, we have the ability to cure cancer. We have, we have the ability to, to, you know, to stop most diseases in your tracks and, and return, return the person back to, uh, you know, a viable human being that, you know, that's been ravaged with. Are they thinking that this would just be bad for the social construct and society, or what's the reason for keeping some of this stuff under wraps? If you're in charge of a very top-secret classified program, you're powerful. Now, if, you, if, you're the, mm-hmm. if you're the security manager or the person responsible saying, yeah, you can have your clearance, you've been bad, I'm pulling your clearance. Right. That type of person. If you spent your entire life in working in black programs, your lifeblood to those black programs is your security clearance. Right. And uh, the people that control your security clearance really control your life. Uh, Dave Fruhoff is a retired lieutenant colonel, SR-71 pilot. He crashed one. Total electrical failure. It wasn't his fault. But he was an operational pilot out of Kadena, Okinawa in 1972. We're still, you know, very active in the Vietnam War. He's flying a night training mission. He's at 
70, about 78,000 feet at Mach 2.7. And that's typically where they flew it, Mach 2.4 to 2.7. Uh, you don't thermally stress the airplane until you get above 2.8. Sure. And uh, so he's at 2.7, uh, he's at 78,000 feet. It's a three-quarter moon, it's 11 o'clock at night. He gets a glint off of something metallic. It wasn't round shape, it was an edge shape, but he got a glint off the three-quarter moon. He said about maybe six or 7,000 feet above him and maybe about five or six miles off to uh, the starboard side, the right side. So he gets on the, on the radio, and he calls Kadena on Secure Voice, wanted to know if we have another SR-71 up. I mean, he would know. He, was, you know. he went through the briefing, and he would know if there was another one up there, but he wanted to double-check. He said, no, you're up there by yourself. And but, no one else has the capability of being up there. No. At this no, time. 1972. Right. Nobody else. The no. Russians aren't there. No. no Chinese the, are the just Russians still, still aren't digging there. in the dirt. <laughs> the Russians still aren't there. <laughs> so... All of a sudden, his backseater said, hey, Dave, we got company. He said, yeah, I know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a look. So he, he, he advances the throttles. And by advancing the throttles, it allows him to climb. And, and he's banking about 10-degree bank. He's not taking his eye off the object. He said he was about almost the same altitude. He's still below it and maybe a mile or two away when this thing took off. He said on about a 30-degree angle of attack and left him like he was heading the other direction. He figured the separation speed was between eight and 12,000 miles an hour. And he lost track of it going, he said, figure between 180 and 200,000 feet. That was 1972. Yes, uh, in 1980, he retired from the Air Force. And if you've been in the black business, black community, and I'm not talking about racial black, I'm talking about classified black programs, Usually, you know, if you, st- if you have a, a Q clearance or a top secret clearance, it's easily transferable to other entities that are working on black programs. And that clearance is worth money. Oh, I mean. they, they, figure, they figure a Q <laughs> clearance is worth $2 million. Yeah, it's legit. It's yeah. serious. Hmm. And uh, Dave ends up being the facility manager at Area 51. And he lived in Lynchburg, Lynchburg, Tennessee, the home of Jack Daniels. My dad lived just down the road to Tullahoma. So I'm in there, and I call him up and say, can I interview you? He said, sure, go in there. And he said, we're talking about everything about the Blackbird, him crashing one. And we t- then we started talking about Area 51. And that's when he told me, I said, do you be- Dave, do you believe in UFOs? that absolutely, positively do exist. He said, you want to expand upon that? And that's when he told me about chasing one in an SR. So... Uh, has that been declassified at all? No, no. So uh, fast forward to 1980, he's now at Area 51, Monday through Friday. He's responsible for every single building and structure in Area 51, above and below ground. And he said, there's nothing below ground at Area 51. Doesn't mean there's not underground somewhere out there, but not, he, wasn't, he said he wasn't privy to anything like that. So after about, he said after about a year and a half, he felt fairly comfortable enough to start asking questions. Because you don't, in that environment, you don't ask questions. Right. That's just a way to lose your clearance. Right. Whatever right. you do have. And uh, he, he asked a couple guys, do we have anything that can go at 200,000 feet at, at Mach 10, Mach 12? No. He said, hmm, okay. <laughs> uh, never, never found an answer to it. Uh, they said nothing, nothing was flight tested at Area 51 that had that capability. Um, 
but he's you know said he was a firm believer in uh, UFOs. Uh, There's been some modern. Uh, footage that's been released that I even saw. I was watching Tucker Carlson, and there's just this footage of this guy's helmet cam, essentially. Yeah. With the, I mean, this, it's the pilot. He came on the episode to talk. He's like, "Yeah, I saw something unexplainable." It was, it was an F-18. It was, it was a tic tac, as they call it. Now, uh, in October, President Trump ordered all government agencies that have anything that related to unknown aerial phenomena or UFOs or flying saucers to be released. They had 180 days to release the information. And that 180 days will, uh, I think the, uh, the hash mark is, is somewhere in uh, end of March, middle of April, that everything that, all, everything that, that agencies have on UFOs has been ordered, declassified, and released to the public. Now, they've released 15,000 uh, PDF files so far on UFOs, and they're you know, primarily transmission of, of, of uh, uh, teletype text. This is before computers. Right. Um, you know, you, uh, almost like Western Union type of, uh, of uh, messages. And all that stuff is supposed to be released. So do you think that Trump's intention to release all of this because he's always talking about the deep state and how the deep state's after him and everything like that. Right. Trump is very anti deep state. Do you think that they, that's one of the reasons why they, he thinks they hate him. I think the deep state is anti-American. They're, they're doing stuff that if in fact, like Ben had implied that we have the ability to cure cancer, we have the ability to have unlimited power with no pollution, pollution-free power. And that's all being kept dark because of some bureaucrat is, is, has, his, has his thumb on the, on the file, and I don't want to release it. That's too, it's too dangerous. The other thing is it may be that the owners of that technology have said, you're not ready for it yet. That could be... And I think that's one more, way to look at I it. I think that's more of a more of the truth than not. Because the other is it's it's so anti-humanity that it's tough to believe that someone could be so callous. Regard regardless of it, the, you, the federal government <laughs> gives a shit. No, no. I'm t- <laughs> just think of the just grab. Let's say you were the guy that had the clearance, right? Grappling with the conscience of the burden of that would be overwhelming. It would be incredible. The you burden, think there'd the be weight. a few deathbed uh, confessions, right? Right, and that's—I mean—all the stuff that I've gotten. These are guys that have retired and no longer are in in industry of any sort, so they're not concerned about their clearances. And most of the guys I I talk about, I don't use their name until after they've passed. Right. Um, I talked to Dave Fruhoff about a week before he died. He died here uh, of COVID. But he had bad heart, he had COPD, he had emphysema, and he was type two. Well, that'll that'll do it. Yeah, and high blood pressure. So he had he had all he had all the things that are gonna kill you anyway. Yeah. And the, and COVID just sort of pushed him over the edge. And uh, yeah, I didn't want to get into that part because I have. We'll steer clear of COVID. <laughs> I have my own opinions. <laughs> Biological warfare. Yeah. Well, probably. Yeah, but. I don't, I mean, it's, Ben said that the powers that be do not want to release the information that they have on alien technology that can make the world a much better place to live. And 
And there's been some stuff, you know, uh, published recently. They say, well, it, it's also very possible that they don't want to release the information because we're not ready to accept the, you know, the information. Well, just think of the human beings are not very great at change. Just in general, human beings as a society, fast changes don't work out very well very often. What? One of, one of the things that is speculated, and I have no basis to say yes, this is real, this is not, is there are, there are some speculations. One of the reasons why the world isn't ready, what holds the world together is a, is a strong glue called believing in a supreme being, God, whether it's Muhammad, whether it's Jesus Christ, whether it's Buddha, whomever. It's the concept, concept of something greater than ourselves. Right. 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 If all of a sudden it would be known, made, made, made known to the world, that all your religious beliefs for Jesus, for Muhammad, for Buddha, it's all bullshit. These are, all, these are guys from, from outer space. These are little gray men from Mars type. Right. And, and those of us in the first world that are educated, we can accept change mm-hmm. but there, there's, not, there's a lot of hayseeds just here in minnesota that could not accept a you know an alien being from an, from another world right uh, you get into your uh your other subcultures your your your, your third world and fourth world type uh, countries and there's more of them there is of us the glue that holds everything together is 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 the belief in god or a supreme being if all of a sudden that is just thrown out the window, well, he was just you know, just a guy from the next you know, next to star, uh, star cluster. You know, if you look up in the sky, go over there. He's from up there. They wouldn't be able to accept that. Right. Well, their entire life is is religion. Their government is religion. Right. It's their way of life is religion. And if you take that away, you've taken away the entire reason for someone to continue living. They, right. They'd have to seek out new motivation to stay alive, and a lot of people that would lead them to. Absolute, yeah, desperation. Yeah, I mean it's 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 serious in terms of cultural shock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So it's it's um, we live in fun times. <laughs> it is a. I was just saying. I, I was just saying the other day to one of my buddies. I said, you know, it's been an interesting year, but what an interesting time to be alive. Depending depending what happens over the next thirty to ninety days. This will be, if things go as I think they're going to go, this will be the most monumental change affecting everybody on this planet since MAD stood upright. What do you mean by that? Um, read the Insurrection Act, which we're under right now, mm-hmm. and then read... Uh, Executive Order One Three Eight Four Eight, Twelve September, Nineteen Correction Twenty Eighteen. It's a, an executive order, and it's that in the Insurrection Act are going to turn the world upside down. It's going to destroy the banking cartels. That's the primary purpose that ta- that President Trump ran for president. Well, it's, we've this whole uh, GameStop financial. That's just a real small part of it. What it just—I just think it opened people's eyes to the the facade of the financial system. 
Julian Assange said that if everything that he has is made public, 98% of Washington, D.C. will be in prison. Well, that's <laughs> why they, he's still in a room. And uh, that dude has lived in one room for how many years now? Seven, eight years? Yeah. He's been stuck in one, yeah. like a studio apartment, essentially? Yeah. Nobody wants that dude going anywhere. <laughs> no, no. And uh, apparently he was. Uh, he was under consideration for uh, a pardon and some of the powers to be in, in uh, uh, Congress, I think, I think it was McConnell, uh, said, if, if you do that, then we'll crucify you. Yeah, and I heard he, he was in line to maybe get one, but did not work out. Yeah, yeah. So, But the technology to make this a better world is here. It's just the powers that be, the ones that control the purse springs, the ones that control the technology uh, fields, that it's in their best. It's our best interest to keep that under wraps and not benefit the world. Well, you have an entire group of, this is kind of politically, political, philosophical stuff. You have an entire class of people. You have a ruling class of people. And their entire point of existence is, A, for themselves, of course. Absolutely. But also, B, they want to be the ones to have the end be the means that they, uh, that they started. They want to be the ones to fix everything. They want to be the ones that are the heroes. They want to be the mega minds behind, you know, the revolution or, or the new, the new they want, form. They want to control the new world. Order. Right. They want to be that group. Yeah. Oh, it's. But, but the next, the next 90 days, depending on which way it goes, could be the most significant change on the planet. Well, I hope you're wrong. I, it's a positive change. You think so? I think so. I'm a voracious reader. I don't read. I don't read novels. I read current events from all over the planet. Sure. So I know what's going on in Japan. I have an idea what's going on in Australia. I know what's happening in Europe. Uh, I one of my one of my favorite rags that I watch is is the Daily Mail. It's sort of a cross between uh, the uh, New York Post and National Enquirer. And uh, I know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm familiar. And there's, they have a different, you know, that they have a different uh, slant on things. I mean, I, I look at the Daily Mail. I look at uh, Times of London, uh, two, two or three other uh, uh, locations in in uh, in England. Um, any, almost any any uh, worldwide news organization that uh, publishes in English, I'll read. And I do that. That's what I do. Right. Well, I think we look at it. We often forget that there are other places. As Americans, we forget there are, that there are other places in the world. <laughs> I, remember, I was I, I, in 2002. I was back in. Uh, I was in England uh, for the 50th anniversary of the the, the De Havilland Comet going into commercial service. It was 1952 that it, uh, the first jet airliner went into commercial service, and. Uh, I was in charge of the restoration of the de Havilland Comet at the Museum of Flight. It's a Mexican airplane. And it's the instruments I showed you earlier. Yeah. Those are the instruments that were out of the comet. Okay. And uh, it's just, uh, oh, God, I hate that. Oh, shit. My mind just went blank again. No, that's all right. I can, <laughs> I'll write down the timestamp here. Yeah. Uh, when how was I going with that? Oh, I know. Um, <laughs> I have, I have, 
thousands of things going through my head. At the same time. <laughs> I really do. And, and, and it, can, it can be a real challenge to say, oh, no, no, put that away. Grab it over here. So I had a, uh, a chance to go to, I was in Blackpool, uh, where, they, where they were, uh, they had the flight simulator for the Nimrod MR4A, the upgraded super Nimrod. They, put a new, they, they used a 50-year-old fuselage and built everything new around it because they wanted it to be British. <laughs> and, the, and the amount of money they spend on it. It does sound very British. It, it <laughs> the really does. Of money, the amount of money they spend on it, they could have purchased 25 uh, wedge tail 737, uh, <laughs> you know, E7 type of uh, right. you know, warning and control type aircraft for what they spent. And they only got four airplanes. They love to make things work that already exist. <laughs> and and the, this, the other this. thing is you have not, you've not enjoyed yourself as a maintenance person until you've worked on something British. You can have something <laughs> the size of a cantaloupe and you're going to have U.S. standard, British standard, mm -hmm. and Wentworth attachments. British in car fan right over there. Well, this guy. Lucas Electronics oh, and that yeah, whole. Prince of Darkness. Yes, exactly. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I got a friend of mine had a... It was a fifty. It was a fifty-seven uh, TR three. Okay. Yep. It was sixty TR three. That's what it was. It was only a couple of years old, and the electrical system was on the Prince of Darkness type. I mean, it, was, <laughs> it was always some weird stuff going on. And fortunately, our squadron. This is I, when I was stationed in Denver. A squadron had a lot of technical types, you know, so we could always do troubleshooting. I was one of them. <laughs> you know, Bob was near traffic controller, so he didn't he didn't do much but talk. <laughs> yeah. So. Anything else you want to cover? I don't know, man. I think we, we covered enough for today. Now, I, I, come, I come to Minnesota sometimes four times a year. Well, we'd love to have you back on yeah. sometime. I think it would be cool. Uh, I know there's plenty more ground to cover. I think in March we're going to have well, all yeah. those documents released. We might as well come back and talk about some of those. I mean, we didn't even, we didn't even talk about all the stuff in the Skunk Works. I know. We yeah. talked about the Black Book. We didn't talk about the 117. I wrote the very first book on it. I know. We'll, <laughs> I, we'll have to do something else again another time. Oh, I, like, I, I enjoy this. It's fun. It goes by fast. Uh, and again, I don't, uh, I don't keep anything from anybody when I'm talking. So, well, you, you must have some secrets you're not telling us. No, you ask me the question. <laughs> if I have the answer, you're going to get it. <laughs> I mean, these guys say, well, I have some stuff, but I'm going to keep it to myself because I'm special. Well, shit, if you get hit by a car tomorrow, you're gonna, that information is going to go with you. So my feeling has always been share the wealth. Yeah, for sure. And I really appreciate you coming in and spending time with us today. And where can people find your book? Amazon, right? You go to Amazon. You go in books by James, middle initial C, Goodall, G-O-O. And we're going to put this in the show notes. I've got yeah. the link to, so you can pre-order the book if you want. Yeah. It looks great. I've seen, we went through some of the photos, some of the, the PowerPoint of, your, of your, uh, your book structure and the photos, and they're awesome. I love looking at all the old photos and, and stuff like that. There's some really great, really interesting stuff in there that I think people will really love. So uh, check out the book. The, the link is in the show notes. Thanks again so much for hanging out with us. Hey, kicking the butt. I loved it. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't sure what to expect. I mean, I, I very rarely came to St. Paul. When, yeah. I lived, when I lived out at Lake Minnetonka, I lived yeah, in, yeah. In, in... That's the opposite side of the world from here. Yeah, I lived in Eden Prairie yep. before, I, before I left here and, and headed west. Before I, before I moved to Tucson in, in 2013, I, I was the associate curator at the Pacific Aviation Museum in Pearl Harbor. Mm. I did that for four years. That was I a, was there last year. Yeah, I was, the museum is because of me.
I was very cool. Uh, about half, about two thirds of the airplane, I got him in. I got wow. him. Wow. Yeah, and uh, I just it Hawaii is twenty four hundred miles from anywhere. I was single. <laughs> this man wants to move to Hawaii. Uh, how old are you? Thirty three. Yeah, it would probably work. If I was in my twenties, early thirties, it could be a gas. Yeah. Uh, being sixty. I'm sick of the snow. Being sixty five. Yeah. <laughs> You live in Minnesota, yes. And the high, I'm leaving Saturday, but going back to Tucson, where it's 75 today, um, the high is going to be minus three. I know. That's 35 degrees below freezing. Yeah, I'm aware. Yeah, so am I. I don't know why I live here. I don't either. I don't anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Thanks hey. Thanks again. And uh, make sure everybody heads over to his link and check the book out. We appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. All right, Do take care. Chris, thanks. Yep. Thanks.